Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as ever this week is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. Hello, Darren. How are you getting on? I'm grand, I'm grand, I'm grand. And this week, to uh, kick off what we're doing, a winter of 1939, we decided what better way to do that, or what better way to mark the occasion, than to have another crossover episode with the wonderful Movie Palace. And to join us in this discussion, we have Carl Sweeney. How are you, Carl? Um, very well, Darren. Thank you. Hi, Andrew. It's great to be back with you guys. It was a lot of fun last time we did this, so I'm really looking forward to tonight. Welcome back. Yeah. Uh, our pleasure. Um, yeah, it's been a while, isn't it? We did Double Indemnity together last year. So yeah, how, Which was a hoot. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun. I mean, how are you guys feeling a year down the line? Older? Wiser? I'm mainly feeling more tired, I've got to say. But how about you? We're, we're, we're doing very good. I, 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 I know this a while ago now, but congratulations again. On the, the on, on your anniversary. Thank you. Um, Podcast anniversary. <laughs> people will be listening to this and wondering, w- w- um, is he early yeah. or, is he or late? Is he late? Yeah, yeah, these yeah. are the questions. Uh, uh, but the important thing is that you remembered. The important thing is I remembered, exactly. Mostly. <laughs> well, thank you guys. Yeah, thanks for contributing to that as well. I, I think people really enjoyed um, your contributions to that. Uh, what a film we've got to discuss today. We're discussing 1939's The Wizard of Oz, and I believe on the 250 you're doing a kind of 1939 mini-season, aren't you? So what's going on there? Yeah, so uh... I'm going to allow Darren to answer this question. <laughs> so, <laughs> I yeah. also want to know. <laughs> so yeah, so basically uh, earlier in the year we, we had a bit of a sit-down, Andrew and I, and we noticed that like <laughs> one of the... <laughs> I make it sound like it's a very organized podcast thing that we're doing. Yeah. But uh, basically, myself and Andrew had a sort of a sit down and we decided. And I was like, Darren, I have some ideas. <laughs> and they're all great, let me tell you. Now, Andrew, we made the observation that we've been doing this for two years now, right? So we've done. In, this is going to be, I think, our 160 something episode, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that time, you would imagine 160, you know, out of 250, we should be somewhere close to 60% done. But because this is so volatile and so prone to change, we're somewhat, we're just over 40% through the list at the moment. Um, so what we decided to do is we decided to prioritize movies that have been on the list since the very beginning and kind of find a way to talk about like fixtures. Try and cheese our listeners. <laughs> yes, out of hearing our important and insightful things about The Legend of 1900 or as its Italian title, The Legend of the Ocean Pianist, starring Tim Roth. Um, but basically we decided that what we try and do is we try and find it's a way to... It's a movie to... that exists, isn't it? It is a movie that exists and it may be a movie that we're going to cover at some point despite our best efforts. Uh, but we, we decided that one of the ways that we try and do it is we build kind of seasons around these movies that have been on the list forever. So to mark the 20th anniversary of 1999 this year, we spent the summer sort of exploring kind of 1999 on the list, a number of great films on there. I think Brian Rafferty uh, made an argument that 1999 was the best movie year ever. Mm. So covering films like The Matrix, The Sixth Sense, Fight Club, American Beauty, all these kind of films that were big and important and formative and kind of discussing them with a range of guests. Baby Geniuses. Baby Geniuses. Let's not forget Baby Geniuses, the classic that is. Uh, but <laughs> one of the, the things that we decided to do was we had a bit of a conversation. We looked at the list and we said, you know, 1999 is very well represented on the list but it's not necessarily the only important year in cinema that is you know having a big anniversary this year having deserves to be marked and celebrated so i went through and i had a look and you know from 1979 i think it's really only apocalypse every, every, now 1969 it's only butch cassie and sundance kid but there were a couple of movies on from 1939 so i thought it'd be well, fun every, to discuss them. we we discovered that every year um they've As made an movies had, had an anniversary in 2019 but that only important anniversary is... <laughs> Are worth celebrating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like your podcast anniversary. But no, so we decided that what we do is we try and do um, 
to celebrate 1939, because there's an argument to be made that 1939 is one of the most important, one of the best and one of the formative years in cinema. And we, to do that, we thought that it would be great to kind of sit down with you and to have a kind of a discussion about it, because the Movie Palace is a celebration of that kind of era of Hollywood and that era of movie making. And we thought who else would be better placed to kind of to talk us, to join us, to discuss 1939 in general, but also in particular, The Wizard of Oz as one of the three movies from 1939 that were on the list. Well, Darren, I can't think of anyone. Um. <laughs> well, cheers, guys. I mean, I'm absolutely flattered and delighted uh, to be with you. And yeah, 1939 is a fascinating year for all manner of reasons, including the films that were made that year. But yeah, so to, to talk a little bit about The Wizard of Oz, because The Wizard of Oz is one of those formative kind of movie experiences. We talked a bit on the podcast before. Sometimes we talk about the first time that we saw a movie, how we remember seeing a movie. But there are some movies that, for me, are so formative that I don't remember a time when I hadn't seen them. And The Wizard of Oz mm. is one of those for me. But I'm wondering, Andrew and Carl, do you guys remember the first time you saw The Wizard of Oz? Or was it just always there for you? So, for me, I would agree with you, Darren. It's This is a film I can't remember seeing for the first time. Um, I must have seen it on television. I don't think I ever owned... The Wizard of Oz on VHS, but it was a perennial fixture on TV when I was growing up. Um, so I saw it quite a few times as a child. And then it's just one of those films, isn't it? That kind of by osmosis, you kind of absorb it. And not just through viewings of the film, but from all these pop culture references that crop up uh, in conjunction with The Wizard of Oz, the parodies, uh, the filmmakers have been inspired by it. Uh, the songs. The songs commercials the that, that use the quote we're the not in kansas anymore yeah all that kind of thing so what's really interesting is to go back and actually watch the film which i've done this week for the first time in quite a while and actually get back you know to that kind of innocence where you're focused on the film itself because again it's one of those films that kind of um has gone beyond being just a film isn't it yeah it's it's a kind of a cultural experience to, to a certain extent i mean there's an argument to be made that it's an american fairy tale and obviously it's based mm. on sort of baum's novels which were usually influential of themselves but you know there was a point where it was estimated i think in 1983 that through the power mm. of television and you mentioned television as like something that you passively absorbed it through i think i would have seen it through vhs through family members i have family members who yeah. cite this as their favorite movie and i imagine that's possibly how i came across it and how i watched it as often as i did but like through television like the wizard of oz you know it was a reasonable success on on initial release it managed they generated a great deal of hype there are stories of like queues that went around the block to get into cinemas to see it you know fifteen thousand people on 8th avenue on opening day 60 policemen drafted in from around new york to help keep order while it was going there and you know by the time the the, the first day of screening had ended in new york thirty-seven thousand people had seen it but because the movie cost as much as it did to make it went one yeah. million dollars over budget and this is in 1939 so in terms of inflation that that's an absolutely massive figure it didn't actually mm -hmm. make a profit um on its cinematic release um it didn't make a profit i think until the late 40s and part of the way that uh that the wizard of oz made a profit was through television airings and it's been estimated that like as of 1983 where the film was repeated annually on television uh repeating i think it alternated between networks um over the course of like 24 years uh leading up to 1983 
but like half the population of the United States had seen it, as I mentioned earlier. But even like mm-hmm. in the UK and Britain, it's estimated that like 100 million people, which I think is possibly more than the population of the island itself, just over time have watched The Wizard of Oz on television, on British terrestrial television. And it's kind of been soaked in that way. And it's interesting because, I mean, I don't want to step too much on what we'll be doing next week because next week we'll be talking about the other 1939 film on the list, which is uh, Gone with the Wind. And, like, The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind share this. They're kind of very interconnected with one another. And we'll talk a little bit about, mm-hmm. like, the directorial credits and stuff like that. And maybe a little bit about how The Wizard of Oz, you know, was the big, was the highest grossing film of 1939. But somehow, you know, because of the quirks of how it was released, Gone with the Wind ends up being the highest grossing movie of all time, despite being released in the same year. But uh, just in terms of the film's television release, it's notable that the reason, one of the reasons why The Wizard of Oz is so ubiquitous on American television is because the networks that wanted to show Gone with the Wind couldn't afford the movie rights. Because uh, when they want, they wanted $1 million for the movie rights, I think, in the 70s. And they they weren't willing to pony up the dough. Holding the world to ransom. <laughs> yeah, for Gone with the Wind. <laughs> $1 million. Uh, for the TV rights for Gone with the Wind. And we'll talk a little bit next week about like TV and Gone with the Wind and its influence there. But like the reason The Wizard of Oz is so popular and ubiquitous is because the movie, despite being a massive like you know financial success by any measure except earning back its budget, it was considered something of a minor failure. And so the studio was very eager to make any profit on it that they could and so sold it out to television relatively cheap, uh, which is, is remarkable. So that's the answer to um, when you first saw it. <laughs> um, I... Um... I, I, I think I was around seven years of age. I was living in, um, I think so anyway. I have a recollection of watching it in uh, Rackormack. And the reason I can remember it is because of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. I feel, mm. I, I feel like that made the kind of biggest impression. impression. Yeah, yeah. That I, I, I came away kind of like with that song. Um uh, just kind of stuck in my head. You're not the only one, Andrew, actually. You will have noted that, like, despite the fact this is the winter of 39, I haven't gone in and done the format of going through the charts and going through what was airing on television. <laughs> um, but it, 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 it is worth noting that, like, the... Billboard charts wouldn't appear until July 1940. Can I do the news? Uh, yes, I have lots of news here as well, but I didn't do that either. Um, but your your hit parade, um, spoiler, I've, World I've, War Two is coming. I've, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the news in 1939. I've, I've, I've hurt Darren's feelings. Um, um, there, there was the summer of 1999 yeah. earlier this year. And I tried to kind of create a kind of an immersive atmosphere by sampling like the pop charts and it giving you a sense great. of news. It was very unique. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, just because you mentioned somewhere over the rainbow, um, during over the course of the charts in 1939, I'm going by your hit parade charts. Um, Glenn Miller was actually the number one artist between June 17th and October 21st. Um, mm. And he had five consecutive number ones. The last of those was his version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Really? So it was immediately kind of a success. Uh, Glenn uh, Miller is that one where it's like... Right? Yeah, I believe so. Okay. Wishing Will Make It So was one was the first one. Star Wait... Was In the Mood was one? No, I think In the Mood was outside 1939, though. In the Mood is a Glenn Miller song. But yeah, he was all over the charts he was the Beatles of his day um 
But like, yeah, five number one hits in 1939. So Moon Love, Over the Rainbow, uh, Dethroned by a Week by Bing Crosby, um, but back on top, you know, on October 24th. And then Blue Orchards, which took him through November 4th, which is five number one hits in a row in the year, which is quite impressive. Uh, but yeah, Somewhere the- Over the Rainbow was a massive hit, massive phenomenon. Yeah, there's something interesting about that, isn't there, as well, in the fa- in the sense that um, it must be it must have been a very bracing thing to hear somewhere over the rainbow for the first time. It must have been very powerful. Yes, and and, and the- I wonder if that slightly gets negated over time. It goes from you know from that first usage, it comes becomes kind of a reassuring standard over the years, doesn't it? And I wonder if that kind of um, alters things somewhat. But yeah, great song. I I find I don't know. I I feel like. I perhaps didn't um perhaps it can never be as powerful as the first time but I felt today um uh watching it again how how like I don't want to tip my hat too much cuz Darren's going to ask <laughs> yeah. in a moment kind of what we all thought of it yeah. um and whether 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 we think it belongs to be on the 250 is it even on the two fifty, Darren? It is not actually because in the time since <laughs> this we organized the idea. it, it dropped off. Yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> movies that won't drop off the two fifty. But yes, one of them has dropped off. Yes, it's a very turbulent time. But to be fair, the, the Wizard of Oz has been a perennial fixture of the two fifty. It's been on since the list's inception we'll be uh, back. back in nineteen ninety six, and it's kind of you know so it it's drop off was very sudden and very sharp. And took me by surprise, uh, uh, somebody who watches the list, the one person in the world who actually cares about these things. Uh, I was kind of taken a bit by surprise. I do have an IMDb-related item of interest about the film, though. I don't know Go if for you it. guys... Yeah, have you seen the study that was done at the University of Turin, where the, the, the researchers tried to identify the most influential film of all time, um, based on how much each film had been referenced by subsequent films, according to the IMDb? Ooh. And they found that The Wizard of Oz was the most influential film of all time in that it had been referenced uh, more than any other film. Wow. Which I thought was interesting. Uh, Care to hazard a guess about films two and three on the list? Films two and three. Gone with the Wind is probably going to be in there, I'm guessing. Because frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn is like one of the most ubiquitous lines in cinema. I'm going to say Casablanca. Oh, also that. I'm just scanning this article. I've only got the top three, but no, we're we're looking more recent than that. Oh, uh, Jaws. Um, there's one film that's kind of of the same time period as Jaws. Okay. Star it, Wars. take a few years. Star Wars, of course, is number two, yeah. And there's an earlier film from 1960 that's number three. Psycho, yes. Right. Um, so the authors found that the top 20 most influential films were all produced before 1980 and mostly in the United States. I mean, I guess there's, you know, obviously films that old have had longer to make their mark. But yeah, kind of fascinating that The Wizard of Oz would be number one. It is probably worth noting that, again, a lot of that's probably down to who's constructing your pool in terms of constructing the references. Because, again, it's mm. a very user-generated sort of database there. So you have, like, there's a good chance that a lot of the films that are, you know, as influential or, or very influential, like in terms of silent cinema, in terms of framing composition, in terms of film art and stuff, you know, are maybe not necessarily being sort of referenced or not necessarily being spotted as references. And I mean, yeah. but, I, but I think there's something to that. Because, again, watching it today, like... And again, you you mentioned earlier the idea of like separating the Wizard of Oz from 
the pop culture that it's created and like the references that exist and everything that has homaged it and everything that's built on it and played with it and how difficult that is. There were moments today when I was watching it and I was hearing lines that, you know, are Wizard of Oz lines. Yeah. But I had difficulty sort of separating them from parodies mm. or references or where they'd been used elsewhere. You know, there's the moment where... Okay, no, I don't want to be too specific because of spoilers. Yeah. But there's a moment where I, I like where at the end the wizard is, you know, having this conversation <laughs> with characters, and I I took a cue of one of the lines from the Futurama parody mm. of of the episode rather than of the film rather than the film itself, which was kind of striking. It's it's just how ubiquitous it is. It's really true, and um, and it kind of has all these strange kind of offshoots as well, doesn't it? Like you know the story about being able to sync up. Um, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon with The Wizard of Oz and you get all these kind of neat illusions and things and yeah it's just a film that's reached into every corner of popular culture in in ways you often don't expect yeah, I mean, it's it's worth noting that, you know, it's a major uh, influence on the work of John Waters, for example. Like, of all directors, he would not necessarily associate with this idea of kind of, like, wholesome 1930s Americana. You have a double bill with this and Pink Flamingos, no? <laughs> no, not quite. Well, I mean, yeah, the uh, I love his quote, by There's the way. There's a dog in both. <laughs> Um, I love John Waters, like John Waters' summary of The Wizard of Oz for somebody who's never seen it, which is probably a better summary than we'll give, is Girl leaves Drab Farm, becomes fag hag, meets gay lions and men who don't try to molest her, meets a witch, kills her, and unfortunately, by a surreal act of shoe fetishism, clicks her shoes together and is back where she belongs. It has an unhappy ending, uh, which is great. Uh, but even like we David... have Lee- not entered the spoiler zone! <laughs> Sorry, John Waters, for putting you on blast. But also uh, David Lynch as well as obviously... John Waters is banned from the podcast from this point on. Ne- never again let John Waters, uh, which is a shame because we had him scheduled next week to discuss about Star Wars. Uh, but no, we also... Uh, for Irish listeners, not that John Waters. <laughs> oh no, that other John Waters. Um, but... <laughs> Also, um, David Lynch, obviously. He's also banned. <laughs> <laughs> Just because of Andrew's memories of doing the Twin Peaks thing. Um, but yeah, Lynch is obviously hugely influenced by The Wizard no, of Oz. No, I mean the other, the other <laughs> John <laughs> <Okay>. Waters. <laughs> Sorry. But uh, with like stuff like Wild at Heart being arguably a yeah. remake of like obviously The Wizard of Oz and stuff like that. It is, it's absolutely everywhere. It's almost impossible to kind of trace. Just actually to go back very briefly to we were discussing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And what's one of the things that's particularly impressive about somewhere? Fucking question. Sorry. <laughs> well, something that's particularly impressive about somewhere over the rainbow is the fact that it was almost cut from the film. Mm, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. When they were when they were getting the film in the editing booth, it was about two hours long. They realized that they wanted the film to be an hour and forty minutes long, which is quite good. Um, and one of the things that they decided to do, or one of the things they considered doing, was chopping as much of the Kansas material from the beginning yeah. as possible. And one of the things they considered doing was they considered chopping somewhere over the rainbow because it wasn't a visually impressive number uh, because it was just it was a star in the middle of a farm. And they thought that it was kind of depressing that they had Judy Garland and she was sitting there and she was singing by farm equipment. And it was like, this isn't what we want to do at all with our movie. And then Toto's agents. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think the story you hear and I don't know if it's been embellished in the retelling, but it's the Arthur Freed uh, who worked on the film kind of stood his ground about that sequence and insisted it stay. And of course, Freed would subsequently go up to head the so-called Freed unit, responsible for all these great MGM musicals that came later, things like Singing in the Rain, you know. And um, I mean, what a what a, um, a dismal move that would have been if that song had been cut, you know. Yeah. I can kind of understand why somebody would have thought, you know, it's a slow ballad, it's three minutes long, we're less than 10 minutes in, but I'm glad it stayed, I really am. 
and it 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 um it probably contributed as well to the Pam Dog <laughs> award existing. Um, Toto's little performance. We talk a lot about Judy Garland and her yearning and her desire to get out there, and that's kind of the powerful heart of the song. But have you been watching Toto during that sequence? He's feeling it just as much. He is actually. Yeah. There's a wonderful dog performance from Toto. Well, when he's sitting apparently, on yeah. Apparently, there was some discussion about would you know should Toto be a talking dog? You know. Um, should the lion, they, there was talk about using Leo the lion yeah. and Jem's lion uh, as, as the cowardly lion. We had, to, um, we had to put a nix on that after he ate two scarecrows. Um. Uh, yeah, so no, I agree. That, Toto that, does give a good... scarecrow was an orphan that belonged to the studio. <laughs> well, I mean, this, is, this is one of the things, again, like uh, not to get too sort of embroiled in the production history of it, but I mean, it is worth noting that the reason The Wizard of Oz exists is because MGM looked at the success of uh, Snow White and the Seven yeah. Dwarfs. Um, which had been released by Disney two years earlier, because there was a standard understanding by studios that American audiences didn't want fantasy in films. They didn't want fantasy films. They didn't want films that kind of pushed outside the boundaries of the world as they understood it. Um, and they looked to kind of any number of examples of kind of previous failures with that. But even like if you look at earlier adaptations of The Wizard of Oz, and we'll include the 1925 version in our show notes, but those versions of The Wizard of Oz that were made earlier tended to be more grounded and to more focused on the real world as opposed to the fantastical. And it's kind of amazing that The Wizard of Oz, you know, that like it was a gamble to make a movie that was this fantastical and this cartoonish and this outlandish yeah. and this magical. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about that is like Darren, you've already alluded to the idea that some people see this as like an American fairy tale. So with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, uh, Disney's version, you've got an American version of a European fairy tale as a key formative influence, as you say, on on the Wizard of Oz, in a way that's maybe not as fully appreciated now as it maybe once would have been, uh, perhaps, but. I think what I've read is that Oz's producer, Mervyn Leroy, said, if Disney can reproduce humans with cartoons, we can reproduce cartoons with humans. Um, but it's kind of an interesting process where, like, as originally conceived, I think The Wizard of Oz would have been much more comparable to Snow White. For instance, the first actress hired to play the Wicked Witch, uh, Gail Sondergaard, um, looked similar to Snow White's evil queen, uh, but was replaced. Uh, in The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, uh, the book, the Wicked Witch of the West is only a minor character, but I think Leroy and some of us felt like the witch needed to be a bit more menacing in a similar way to the evil queen. And the Munchkins as well, I think, um, as originally conceived, their presence in the film would have been a bit more defined in a way that they were more of a focal point as the Seven Dwarves had been in Snow White. So it seems like a lot of the inspirations from Snow White were at least somewhat kind of effaced as the film took shape. It became more of its own thing, which I find kind of fascinating. Which is, which is great because its own thing ended up being iconic in its own right. But yeah, we're mm. going to, before we're going to talk about the film more depth in a moment of the Smore Zone, but before we do, we have three questions uh, that okay. we'd like to ask. So we're going to start with you, Carl. Or after. <laughs> we could talk about the movie in depth and then ask the questions. <laughs> yeah. We want to make it as difficult for you to edit as possible, Carl. <laughs> but uh, so the three questions that we asked, the first one up is, Carl, do you think The Wizard of Oz belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? I certainly wouldn't demur at the prospect of The Wizard of Oz being on a top 250 list. Uh, I'm kind of surprised it's not on the IMDb, but it's it wouldn't... Well, I think this might be the next question, mightn't it? Yeah. But it wouldn't necessarily be on my own top 250 list. I'm not sure. Okay. Interesting. A Andrew, will you take 
both questions. Yes, I'll take um, all three. Okay, okay. <laughs> just to make it even more difficult. Yeah, yeah. So, um, are easy. Um, so, uh, would would it be on? Um, should it be on the two fifty? I believe it should be. I'm surprised it isn't. Um, there's not that many movies I can think of that I um feel deserve to kind of knock it off. Um, it feels like a classic that just has a place, yeah. and um, you don't even question it. Um, being 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 on the list, um, would it be on my own two fifty? I generally tend not to um, uh, favor kind of having uh, kids movies on this. Um, it's a difficult one to say whether I put it on my two fifty because on the one hand. I um I love this movie. I I saw it today. It has been a very long time. I don't think I had seen it um since I was a child. Um and it was delightful. It was mesmerizing. There were goosebumps washing kind of all over me at 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 parts of this film. At the other on the other hand, I agree somewhat with John Washers when he says it doesn't have yeah, it has an unhappy ending, um, and mm. so I'm not sure I agree with the moral of <laughs> of 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 the film. But uh, but maybe that... you heard it here first, listeners. Wizard of Oz <laughs> corrupting our youth. Yeah, but it, per per perhaps um, perhaps I have something when you to have learn. John Waters clutching his pearls. You know you've done something <laughs> wrong. Perhaps I have something to learn from the moral of the movie. Um, Maybe I don't like it, but maybe it's um it's uh the 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 the, the kind of um wisdom that I've yet to uh to 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 learn. Would I recommend? <laughs> yeah, yes. No. Would you recommend? I feel like Darren wants to um originally uh, sort of <laughs> like you know kind of structure the questions. How about you, Darren? Where would do you believe it should be on the two fifty? Yes, to both questions. Um, I I think that it belongs on the two fifty. I think it's a massively influential film. I think it, in terms of defining and shaping pop culture, as Carl mentioned there, but even in terms of say things like filmmaking technique and stuff like that, the blurring of kind of black and well, we call it black and white, but the blurring of the sepia tinted yeah. kind of nostalgic Kansas scenes with the more vibrant, colorful, and imaginary sort of like Oz scenes, to pick an example. But even even things like the way in which Oz looks and feels and kind of the texture to it and like as a movie making sort of spectacle and I mean we'll, we'll be talking about like Gone with the Wind kind of next week as well and that's going to be its own bag of kind of kettle of fish or whatever bag of fish whatever it's going to be but like in terms of production this is a staggeringly beautiful piece of work this is when I think of and again this is I, I feel like I'm being overly nostalgic or overly romantic and again this is where the two answers blur together for me but for me when I think of cinema um, this is one of the first films that I remember and it's, mm -hmm. it's one of the thing, films that I think about when I think about what the medium is capable of doing. And what I think about when I think about older films in particular, but what I think about when I think about like being swept away and taken into a different world. Because it's not, and we'll probably talk about this on the other side of the spoiler zone, but Oz isn't meant to be kind of convincing in a real world way. I think even to a kid, you're aware of the fact that it's matte paintings and you're aware of the mm -hmm. fact that the, the munchkins are just, you know, are child actors or dwarves who have been painted a kind of a particular color and are dancing and performing. But like the idea that watching it, it becomes almost magical because 
it's trying to conjure something that is within your imagination into something that you can actually hold or touch or something that is can be shot with a camera in a way and not to rain on things like the emergence of cgi or, or computer generated special effects and stuff like that but something that is practical and actually built in material uh, is something that i think about when i think about film it's something that i like stays with me yeah and uh, we mentioned john waters and we mentioned lynch but i also happened to qu- uh, across a quote from james cameron from the late 1990s, I think. Uh, I don't have it here, I'm just paraphrasing, but he talked about, you know, just being stunned by the filmmaking in The Wizard of Oz. So I think you're completely right uh, in that assessment. Uh, I guess what I was just thinking is, if I sat down to make my own list of films, um, I feel like I could cite quite a few films before I got to The Wizard of Oz. Um, And I think possibly that's because I'm more drawn to auteur-driven stuff at times, and The Wizard of Oz is emphatically not that. I mean, yes. I think Salman Rushdie's described the film as an awfulous text. Yeah. But I completely agree. It's a great film, and um, it does feel like a film that should be on these kinds of lists, to be fair. It does indeed, and it's it's got this kind of universal appeal. I mean, one of the things about film is film is a mass medium you know it's a film yeah. that it's a, it's a medium that you know you you have a film you create a copy of that film or even like if it's a digital copy or whatever but you can share it uh, it's something that you've watched across generations and you know, while there's there's various other arguments about using film as a way to communicate messages and to speak to specific audiences there's something about the university universality of film you know it's going into a dark room with a bunch of strangers staring at a screen seeing the same image and making it your own while being part of a crowd that kind of the wizard of oz you know sort of is to me because it is one of the most watched films in the world it's one of the most popular pieces of entertainment it's something where you can you know you can say if i only had a brain you can whistle the tune yeah you can say we're not in kansas anymore and people will immediately understand what you're talking about it has this kind of power which is you know and again this is the thing where i think that's why it belongs on the list the 250 list on any list of the greatest movies ever but for me personally it also because it embodies one of the things Mm -hmm. that i personally you know that I personally like about movies, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's got a very malleable quality as well, doesn't it? Where um, people have read it in very different ways. Like I read, I read a piece just before we started from um, The Guardian by Badisha in the last couple of years, where she talks about it as uh, seeing it as kind of a, a parallel to the Trump era, and then you have people who read it in the other direction and see it as being about like nineteenth-century robber barons, and you know, it, it's kind of it can support all those readings without collapsing under the weight of them, I think, because it's a pure slice of entertainment as well. That's it. And it, it's just a pure piece of technical craft. And it, it's got these broad themes as well that you see, again, through through literature in general, but also even like if you look at American literature, like things like, say, Star Wars, to pick an example. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of the Star Wars kind of myth here in the story of a child who goes off and finds a magical world, but who, you know goes off and becomes their own person and engages in a mythical quest, but then also at the end of that story goes home, you know, and and sort of like, you know, it has that unhappy ending that John Waters describes, but which a lot of these myths, when they've been repurposed for American audiences, and, and again, you want to point to Snow White as like an American version of a European fairy tale. A lot of the Walt Disney stuff is in that style. It's sort of like it, it kind of puts the, it smooths the rough edges off, say the, the stories of mm. Brothers Grimm or Hans Christian Andersen. It removes a lot of the edge and offers something that's very comforting and very warm that you can wrap around you like a blanket. And The Wizard of Oz is that 
you know, to an extent. And I think it, it's built, unlike those other stories where you're taking an existing text and you're adding that element to it or kind of taking something away from it in order to do that, it feels like it's almost baked into The Wizard of Oz from the beginning. And so it feels purer to me in that sense. And I think it's a scarier film than um, people might think of it as, you know, like I've watched this film recently with my, my daughter who's uh, free and... Yeah, I can remember now, like looking at it now, I can remember why as a child I was scared of, you know, the, mon- the flying monkeys and the witch and um, Judy Garland's performance has kind of a unsettled quality to it as well. And and particularly in hindsight as well, that's the thing, yeah. where Gar- because of what happened with Garland afterwards and where her career went and where her life went uh, kind of after this point as well, it kind of imbues it with a retroactive kind of tragedy that's almost hard to kind of, you know, hard mm. to escape to a certain extent. But uh, I guess we'll probably talk about the film in more depth in the spoilers. What are we recommending? Oh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I think we all are. Um, yes, our, Carl, would you recommend that if people have not watched The Wizard of Oz, uh, would you recommend they pause the podcast, run out <coughs> and watch The Wizard of Oz? I absolutely would. Go and, go and do it, please, listeners, if you're in that unlikely situation. And Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they, this this will this will delight you. You think you don't need to watch this movie mm. because you've seen it before, but you can listen to three guys talk about it, and you can. But go watch it first. It's a uh, treat yourself. It's really really great. I would also recommend it. It was a delight watching it this time. I'm always nervous yeah. when I go back to stuff I loved as a kid. Uh, this really 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 held up for me. All right, join us on the other side of the spoiler zone. Warning for this film, for listeners at home. Watch the movie before you come to the spoiler zone. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, so, Carl. <clears throat> what is The Wizard yep. of Oz about for you? I really don't think I can do better than um, a guy called Rick Polito, who wrote uh, a listing for The Wizard of Oz when it was um, about to be broadcast on TCM back in 1998 in a, in a TV guide somewhere. And his description was, Transported to a surreal landscape, a young girl kills the first person she meets and then teams up with three strangers to kill again. I think that kind of says it all. But no, it's an interesting question, I think, because as we kind of alluded to, this is a film with a real kind of Rorschach test-like quality, isn't it? It's been subjected to all manner of readings. And even what uh, Andrew's saying kind of hints at that. For some people, it's a film where Dorothy ultimately kind of succumbs to patriarchal forces. Other people would frame it much more positively than that. Some people would see it as an example of radical religious skepticism. Other people would kind of sidestep those implications, I think. And I'm sure we can get into some of that. But again, it's the thing I like about watching this film every so often is just remembering that there's a living, breathing film underneath that kind of cultural edifice that's been erected around it. Um, For me, the most interesting aspects of the film are kind of what you've alluded to, Darren, I think, in that this is indicative of the filmmaking processes of the time uh, in a way that demonstrates them in the best possible light. And also it would, you know... And any list of the great 1939 films would include The Wizard of Oz. So I think it's um, a very, you know, it has a very special place in Hollywood history. And I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about it. 
Yeah, just to give a sense of like the scale of technical craft involved in this, some some random statistics here. But twenty men spent a full week sticking forty thousand wire stemmed poppies into the ground for that scene in the enchanted poppy field to create the eerie cries in the haunted forest. Uh, Douglas Douglas Shearer, the film sound designer, took a team to Santa Catalina, uh, the Pacific island twenty odd miles south of Los Angeles. They recorded bird calls on fifteen thousand feet of tape, which they later spun together to unearthly shrieks. Uh, in September 1938, the seamstresses began their work. Everything was built from the ground up and was custom made. Letters were sent to zookeepers around the United States asking for the feathers of condors, condors, eagles and vultures, which were stitched together to make wings for the witch's terrifying flying monkeys. Thousands of pairs of shoes and stockings were dyed green for the inhabitants of the Emerald City. I mean, even even beyond that, there's the famous story of Buddy Ebsen, who was the original yeah. Tin Man, who like was had such a strong allergic reaction to the makeup and costume design that he was in he ended up in an iron lung um they didn't realize anything was wrong until he literally passed out as a result of the tin man the tin man the original ended up in an iron lung (laughs) yeah i know the irony is is pretty uh pretty great there but yeah it's staggering in terms of just the technical was that a pun uh no it was not no it was not um but it was like just in terms of the level of craft on display the level of production everything in the film is built and tailored everything exists um is real and you can kind of hold and what's great about it is that it's not designed to be entirely convincing so the scenes where dorothy and her friends or even dorothy by herself are walking up and down the yellow brick road it's very obvious to even a child watching and again you know on a big screen mostly seen on television and i wonder if maybe it was more convincing on television as television existed you know in the 80s when it was a square box with lots of snow on it and it was maybe harder to see you know the gap but you know harder to distinguish the image or sort of find the image but like on modern televisions or in cinemas it's very clear that it's a matte painted backdrop it's very clearly unreal it's very clearly something that you know is very is is fake and has been built and designed in the work of craftsmen as opposed to being a literal physical location that exists but i i think the kind of soft edges of um of technicolor were much more kind of painterly anyway yeah um so i i don't think there would have i wouldn't imagine the same distinction would would be drawn between kind of um like I, I I feel like people would have been willing to kind of take the jump, you yeah. know, um and, and suspend disbelief. Like like something that's more grounded, like um the say the sound of music. It's still very um technical uh, or it has uh, fantastical and like it it, it it's um it's very it's very much kind of um yeah, but 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 you 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 buy into the idea that that um that these are that this is something that's kind of it that's portraying something in the real world, and here it's like they're <laughs> actually in this world. It's not a painting, kind of. Yeah, or, definitely. I, yeah, yeah, and I think it's worth remembering just the the sheer scale of like the industrial nature of the studio filmmaking that went into that. You know, because I think apparently the Wizard of Oz. Um, whilst it was in production, it usually used MGM sound stages 24, 25, 26, and 27. And I just think those kind of numbers kind of tell you something about the industrial churn of the filmmaking, scale you know. Of 
Yeah. I mean, did you uh, watch, was it um, earlier in the year, there was the Stan and Ollie movie. And yes. it's that wonderful long take that opens it, where you literally have this sea of warehouses where they're filming all mm. these movies as the characters are going to the set where they're going to film one of their one of their shorts. And that's I really like that sequence, if only because it yeah. does get the sense of movie making at the time being something of a kind of, of a factory. Yeah, definitely. And um, apparently there was some kind of sense, though, amongst those working at MGM at the time, um, you know, on other productions that were ongoing at the same time. But there was a sense that The Wizard of Oz was something a bit different. Um, so there was a high degree of curiosity. It meant that people on contract um, quite often stopped by for a look just to kind of gape at these sets and things, you know. And I agree with what you said, I think. It's um, things like the sets and the painted backdrops and the special effects. They seem artificial in the very best way to me. Yeah. You can almost feel the amount of labor that's gone into them in a way that's not inherently better or worse than more modern techniques, I don't think, but it's tangibly different. And that's what I like very much about this film. Yeah, it, it doesn't feel like it's trying, or at least to me, it, it didn't feel like it's trying to approximate reality. As in, like, you made the observation there about, like, you know, Snow White, you know, animating cartoons that, like, people, you know, and, and stuff like Disney would do stuff like rotoscoping that would kind of blur the boundaries where they'd actually have actors act out scenes and they'd trace over to get a sense of movement. Song and of the South. Um, yeah, well, that's that's a completely different kettle of fish. But even even things like and and how the Wizard of Oz is like using actors and real locations. Another bag of fish. Um, to make thank you, Andrew, <laughs> to make a cartoon. It's using real life places and things that physically exist to make something that could not possibly ever exist, which is arguably something that I I really really like about movies. And you mentioned that wonderful quote from Salman Rushdie uh, in that New yeah. York article, which we'll include in the show notes, where he observed that you know it is the will of the wisp for modern critical theory, the authorless text, but it's very much it's a quintessentially kind of a product of the studio system as it exists at that time and i mean we'll be talking about gone with the wind next week which is another example of that but the idea that you know when you were working on on kind of the wizard of oz you had at least four directors who were working on the picture mm. you know at various times the, the sequences on the farmyard were not shot by victor fleming who shot most of the sequences in oz you have is it uh Krakur, who's the guy who uh, who laid out most of the design of it, but never shot a frame of footage. He set the aesthetic and the mood, and Fleming came in and largely kind of realized that rather than imposing his own vision on it. You had a pool of 10 different writers um, who were working um, on the film at various different times, various different screenplays that introduced numerous different elements in it, ideas that can be traced back to individual writers and that were introduced seemingly at random in a way that's difficult to sort of tell. So things yeah. like the, the Red Slippers. In the original um, novel in Baum's original story the silvers were slip were silver and in fact actually it's notable that when you're watching a modern Wizard of Oz adaptation or a film that is trying to build on the Wizard of Oz it's typically not made by MGM because obviously MGM at the moment don't actually exist but you have things like Disney trying to make sequels to it so things like for example Return to Oz or even Oz the Great and Powerful where you yeah. have this kind of because the Wizard of Oz text they own the rights to it but they don't own the rights to the Wizard of Oz movie. You have yeah. this back and forth over elements that are unique to the movie and not unique to the text. So things like the red slippers, which replace the silver slippers in Baum's original novel, where like for making Return to Oz, Disney had to pay a huge sum of money to, to MGM and to Warners in order to allow them 
to use the red slippers. And you have other cases where they have to write around these absences where you're almost trying to evoke an uncanny sort of valley because so much of what we associate with The Wizard of Oz kind of came from the film and through the process of creating the film. But even things like the songs that we mentioned, which were written mm -hmm. by a different creative film than the writers themselves, the fact that like so much of the film is in its production value as much as in what's on the page, you know, as much as in what's actually written and directed. It's the design of the things. Yeah. It's the look of the Tin Man. It's, it's, it is this movie which very much eschews what you mentioned, kind of auteur-driven cinema. It's a, There's no one person, with the possible exception of the producer who we mentioned at the start. Is it Roy Le Mersch? Um, the name of the producer? Mervyn Leroy. Mervyn Leroy, sorry. Mervyn Leroy. Yeah. Um, with the exception of Mervyn Leroy, it's very hard to point to one person whose singular defining vision is responsible for the movie that ended up on screen. And as a result, it's kind of... it's. It's an int I think it I think it's evocative of the era in terms of film production. And it it's kind of fascinating because a lot of how we talk about films these days is auteur driven. We talk about like the directors and their own unique stamp, we talk about writers about their own recurring motifs. But The Wizard of Oz is something where it feels like everything came together and clicked in a way that created a piece of work that almost exists of itself, almost exists like willed itself into existence. Yeah. Um, that I find just striking to watch. It, it is very striking to watch. And it's the kind of thing you hear about other great studio system era films like Casablanca, where it seems like everybody discusses it in terms of it being a, a, like a, a convergence of happy accidents and that kind of thing. I guess what you have here is the musical, I suppose the American musical generally in sort of studio system era Hollywood would probably not be regarded as much of a vehicle for auteurs you know because of the yeah. focus on collaboration and you know you have songwriters and choreographers who would all bring their own influences to bear so i guess with some exceptions the musical is kind of outside the auteur framework in a lot of ways when we're talking about this era um but yeah there's just something about i mean i don't know should we get into the 1939 aspect and like why 1939 is especially a striking year and the things that kind of came together for that to be the case yeah let's talk a little, let's put a little bit of context in terms of talking about the wizard of oz because it, it it was the highest grossing as we mentioned earlier the <laughs> highest grossing movie of the year despite the fact that it was not the highest grossing movie released in 1939 which is an interesting quirk mm, but it, it's it's yeah. 1939 is generally regarded by film scholars as one of the formative years uh for modern cinema and kind of why that is and particularly like as somebody who hosts a podcast dedicated to classic Hollywood, would you agree with that assessment? Do you think 1939 is the best year in movies? Is it the most important year in American movies? And what is it about 1939 that makes it special? I wonder if sometimes the emphasis on 1939 is slightly overstated, but I think I can understand the reasons why it does crop up in such discussions. So, yeah, in, in addition to The Wizard of Oz and The Gone uh, Wind, which you cover in soon, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington... Uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Dark Victory, Only Angels Have Wings, Young Mr. Lincoln. Um, so it's a very strong crop, definitely. I think there are a few factors that are contributing to why it's such a great year. Of course, it's before America's entry into the war, um, and Hollywood would subsequently lose access to some European markets because of the war. But there are also factors like the apparent scarcity of film stock, uh, colour stock, uh, in 1940, at a time when, off the back of stuff like The Wizard of Oz, colour was more popular than ever with audiences. Um, also, talented people in the industry going into the military must have had an effect. So I think those are some of the reasons why 1939 stands out in comparison to what came 
immediately afterwards. But I think in terms of why it stood out, in terms of what came before, I guess it's probably the fact that Hollywood had worked its way through some of these kind of growing pains to do with, you know, these technological innovations like the coming of sound and colour filmmaking through the 30s. Um, I think Hollywood output had also been shaped by things like sort of the Great Depression on one hand and the New Deal on the other in ways that were quite productive. So I think there is an artistic flowering through the 30s that seems to come together in 1939 in a way that you get all these notable films such as The Wizard of Oz. So whether it's the greatest year for... Yeah, whether it's the greatest year for film, of course that's entirely subjective, but it's definitely an important one, I think. Yeah, it's worth noting actually, just in terms of things that you mentioned there, like things like the effect of World War II, Chaplin actually paused production on his film like earlier in the week that this released on August 21st because of the looming Second World War. He, he, He delayed production on the dictators because of uncertainty over what was happening in Europe in terms of things like the idea of American optimism between the the wars and that gradually building and the idea of America emerging from the Great Depression like at the time that this movie was released the World's Fair was happening in New York and that had been one like one of the big pushes of the World's Fair was you know not necessarily film but television as the wave of the future and in fact the first ever televised baseball game uh, was broadcast mm. on August 26th, the day after The Wizard of Oz was kind of released. So there was this sense of, like, optimism coming through. And, I mean, even in, in the context of The Wizard of Oz, you have this portrayal of, of kind of rural America. And you have this kind of portrayal of, you know, and it is kind of, it is bleak, it is sepia-tinted and stuff like that. And it literally opens uh, with the Gale Farm where Aunt Em um, is count- literally counting chickens. They're counting livestock as they're sort of going along. They're having to repair equipment as they're doing it. But there's a sense of kind of, you know, of resilience there between them. You have the three farmhands who are all upbeat and happy. It's a far cry from something like, say, the Grapes of Wrath or kind of the portrayal of kind of the American Midwest or the Dust Bowl, kind of like that you would associate with the early 30s. You know, there's still a sense of like Elmira Gulp owning, you know, she owns half the county. But there's less of a sense of like desperation. There's a sense the Gales are, you know, if not well to do, are surviving at the very, very least. I'm surprised there wasn't any um, payoff or reconciliation with Gulch. <laughs> it's like the, the <laughs> next. I, I mean, um, there is a warrant out for Toto. For Toto, he an is, adorable little uh, criminal uh, at large. But I, I suppose because of double jeopardy. it can't be tried for that twice yeah um i do uh, yeah we could just pretend gulp got crushed by a you know in the hurricane or in the tornado or something like that by the way the tornado was a sock i guess so why didn't they say that you're like (laughs) um uh, good news, Darcy. <laughs> <laughs> Almira was brutally killed in a freak uh, tornado-related accident. Um, the tornado was actually... Brutally killed in a tornado murder. <laughs> yeah. In a 35-foot uh, muslin windsock attached to a car was apparently how they reproduced that tornado effect, which is kind of great. I kind of love that. But yeah, it, it is interesting that that's never really dealt with. The framing device was apparently added because of that anxiety they mentioned earlier. Um, with the studios not being not entirely trusting that American audiences would embrace full-fledged fantasy. So the idea of yeah. the framing device in um, Kansas was to add a bit of an anchoring to it. And the argument that Oz was a dream sequence, which might allow audiences to kind of be a bit less skeptical with regards to the more fantastical elements, which had been downplayed in earlier adaptations. And I, I, I kind of like that. I know that we'll probably talk about the ending in a moment, but I actually quite like the cleverness of mirroring like the Kansas sequences with the with the Oz sequences, the point where you the know, transition is tremendous. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. 
It's just so yeah. incredible. And and it struck me. Like, I knew it was coming, but it, it really... Oh, the actual opening of the door is, yeah. uh, is, is amazing. From, from mm. sepia tinted to colour. And, like, even how they do that, because the way that it's this... It looks like it's the same shot, and she opens yeah, the like door. Special effects, generally. Yeah. Even even in the scene before that. Um, I don't think this dates badly, no. poorly at all. Like, like they, uh, people say that about movies when there's special effects. But even even the stuff in the window... Yes, with the sort of like the overlay and stuff like that. But I think I think that large part that gets back to what I was talking about earlier, where the film isn't going for something particularly convincing or realistic. It's going, you know, and I don't want to say it's abstract or expressionist in the style, say, German cinema of the 20s, but it is well, aiming art, for... Art doesn't have to be, um, you know, f- um, um, entirely... Um, uh, representative like, yeah. like like you you could you can you 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 can make things um uh, figurative yeah and i think the film does that you know i think that's part of the reason why the film is in jordan white special effects have aged as well is because you never get a sense that you know they are cutting edge they are among the best special effects ever been done in terms of like craft and technique but there's never a sense of the that the question being asked is does this look real rather than does this look good? Does this work? Does this do what we want it to do? And does it convey a sense of awe and spectacle above all else? And I think that those sequences do. And they still do, yeah. And I think that's what's such a pleasant surprise. Not not a surprise, but what's so pleasant about going back to see the film after a number of years is that those effects still do work in all the right ways. But I wonder if the familiarity of those elements could work in other ways for audiences too. Um, in the sense that it, it's crucial to remember, I think, that this was a really ambitious film. You know, like you said, that this kind of feeling that fantasy was not a great fit for live action. I think because there'd been an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland a few years prior to this with Cary Grant that had been unconvincing, where all the performers were kind of buried under elaborate costumes and their personalities didn't really shine through. Um, so they needed a lot of skill and innovation in the areas of like makeup and costumes, set design, special makeup. effects, and so on. Yes. Yeah, and Incredible. MGM of course had all the resources, but even things like um, the Scarecrow's mask, I think, still yes. really great. You know, you can't tell where it ends, which is amazing. Yeah. Like again, like because you you look at films from you know even the seventies or whatever when they're upscaled into high definition, or the original film stock is kind of treated and remastered, where you can tell the divide that exists between you know well this is the performer's skin. And this is the flap that's going to mark the edge of the mask. But when you're looking at the scarecrow, the joins are incredibly well disguised. Well, he's never able to work again. <laughs> after that situation. <laughs> after yeah. that. Well, I mean, he was uh, originally cast as the Tin Man, I believe, but he ch- he Ooh. lobbied to change the role because he felt like he wouldn't be able to uh, do the slapstick. Ah. Um, he wanted to be able to perform and do pratfalls and sort of flip and dance. And he felt like the Tin Man's sort of character design uh, would not lend itself to that sort of production. That sort of value. It's the same it? same problem um, that uh, Peter Weller um, had with Robocop. Had with Robocop. <coughs> uh, obligatory Robocop reference yeah. from the two fifty. Well, the, yeah, the interesting thing about the makeup, I think, is it's also worth remembering that there are a lot of people on screen uh, in this film. You know, obviously all the main characters, but think about how many people played the Munchkins and the Flying Monkeys, uh, the other inhabitants of Oz. And from what I've read, so I've read a great book called The Wizardry of Oz by Jay Scarfoni and William Stillman, um, who look into all this. And apparently the makeup man, Jack Dawn and his team, they worked a very grueling schedule, like six or seven days a week, 12 hour shifts. But they were very efficient is the, is the thing that comes through. Um, 
And I think it goes back to that thing about collaboration. You know, it's a film that's heavily reliant on collaboration. Um, so what's a kind of a shame is, um, it, you know, like the the wizard says, don't look behind the curtain. And of course, this is a film that, because of the time it was made, it credits very few people, doesn't it, on screen? Yes. You know, in terms of the creative personnel, very few of them were explicitly recognized at There's the what, time. Five title cards, if even. I do love yeah. that line. Uh, pay pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's good that a film like The Wizard of Oz, because it's so enduring, it's received such attention that, like in this book I've just men- mentioned, many of those individuals can now be identified. You know, there are books, there are multiple books that go into the making of the film. But it also makes me kind of sad about all the films that haven't received the same kind of level of attention. You know, and all the craftspeople um, involved as well. Yeah, exactly. We were talking about makeup. I was thinking about hair during it. Yeah. Have you seen all of the Munchkin's hair and 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 the people even in Emerald City? Is this where they like? I'm surprised um, that it hasn't become a a hipster haircut where you have like a a, 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 a middle part with yeah exactly with like a heavy pomade, a shaved um, a portion just 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 oh yeah the uh, wizard when he opens just the under door, the crown yeah. which uh, with then again a little. Um, little flock of hair underneath And don't that. forget the moustache. The moustache is very important to tie it all together. Well, I mean, it again, The Wizard of Oz, you mentioned the fact that The Wizard of Oz has this kind of level of, like, history around it as well. It also has a level of kind of urban legend as well and mm. kind of a level of myths and stories that are told. And particularly, like, the Munchkins. Because um, you mentioned the Munchkins there and the casting of the Munchkins, which was very difficult, and the, the, the difficulty the studio had finding uh, actors to play those roles, um, little people who were sort of available to kind of play those parts. Some of the parts are played by children. But you also had this kind of... Like the lollipop guild? The lollipop guild. Well, you know that the last surviving uh, munchkin, actually, um, and his name was Jerry Marin. He was the one of the lollipop guild representatives. I don't know if he was the one in the centre or the one on the left of the screen. Wasn't, um, he, wasn't he a child? Uh, no. Oh, sorry. Um, well, he would have been at that time because he, he died in July 2018. Oh, yes. So he would have yeah, been yeah. quite young um, as well. But uh, yeah, the, the Munchkins famously had a lot of, um, there were a lot of kind of sordid rumours about them as well that were kind of spread. There was Judy Garland in 1967 in an interview with Jack Parr described them as mm. drunks who got smashed every night and we'd have to pick them up in butterfly nets. Um, yeah. and, you know, That's by- what that was for. Yeah, well, there I mean, was a butterfly net oh, earlier when, on. And later the, on, when, when the, the scene where is going Scarecrow, to... by the way, has a gun. Yes, Scarecrow has a gun. Like I, I love that it's like the lion needs courage, but Scarecrow has a gun uh, when they go off into the into the scary forest. It's like um, your man was a brick with the grenade. <laughs> <laughs> oh, in in, in sorry, in, uh, in Anchorman, Anchorman yes. yeah. Um, but yeah, like the, the, all these stories that were told, apparently that the Munchkins sort of, you know, so you had like Chevy Chase under the rainbow. He had a comedy, a cornball comedy that he adapted that played on that. Sally Jessica Raphael, uh, Scott Simon, um, described, you know, sort of the, portrayed the Munchkins as being sort of like, you know, drunken, unreliable, having orgies and stuff like that. Um, the film historian. We're saying this as if like getting drunk and having orgies is, is, is a, a mark against them. Uh, well, I I feel like if they want to get drunk and have orgies, then then more power to them. Yeah, um, yeah. But it was Hugh Forden who called the Munchkins, and I quote: Since "When did we become so puritanical <laughs> on this podcast? An unholy assemblage of pimps, hookers, yeah. and gamblers—the most deformed, unpleasant bunch of adults ima- uh, imaginable." Um, but the truth is very far from that. To be absolutely clear, um, Algene. Sorry, uh, who I, said that last thing? Uh, Hugh Forden, the bunch. Uh, Hugh Forden, the film historian. 
Nice. Um, but Algene uh, Harmetz, who's the, the New York Times critic as well, the longtime Hollywood correspondent, she dedicated her career to largely debunking those. She wrote like the making of The Wizard of Oz as well. Um, and there's there's actually surprising there's only one or two anecdotes and about actual sort of like trouble involving the Munchkin actors. Yeah. Um, Charlie Kelly um, and his and another dwarf who had quote tried to knife an assistant in an altercation apparently got into an argument over his wife over uh, Charlie Kelly's wife. Um, and the there's an interesting thing about that where the Munchkins apparently um, there's this story. That lots of little people actors. Judy Garland calling some, calling somebody else out. Um, okay, <laughs> sorry, it just occurred to me now. Yeah, but the um, what they're saying is that apparently there's a long history of, of little people actors claiming to have been Munchkins, and this ties back into what you were saying mm. there about the film not having proper credits and not having proper listings of cast stuff. Uh, but there are l- a large number of actors who have claimed to be Munchkins, for example, um, and later mm. Oompa Loompas. Um, while researching his book, The Munchkins Remember, the writer Stephen Cox found himself repeatedly unmasking uh, actors who had not actually appeared in the film. In 2005, the Reno hairdresser, Ezzy Dame, uh, went on a Mia Culpa press tour after his 30-year Oompa Loompa scam was exposed. Um, there's something so special when a child looks 30 at... 30-year Oompa Loompa <laughs> scam exposed. Today's headlines. Buy a ticket to the press tour. Um, but he said... That, that, like The actors have talked about it, and they said that there's something so special when In a child... In the darker side of the news. <laughs> yeah. There's something so special when a child looks at a little person and they're not scared. When you say you played that part, they look at you and smile. They see you as a human being. And it was a little white lie that became my nightmare. And it's kind of, it's something very kind of sad in that. Which is kind of like an echoes through, you know, the, the film a little bit. I, I, I don't, I, I, would ima- I, w- I would imagine it's kind of, de- I, w- I would have imagined it would be degrading after a while to have to kind of tell children, I'm a munchkin and... Um, uh, in order for them to kind of accept and like you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, that is a kind of a sad tragedy. I mean, they, they talk about the casting of the Munchkins where they they consciously weeded out um, achondroplastic dwarves and dwarves of colour um, as well in mm. order to kind of like... they A little people... Um, Mervyn Leroy recalled that he wanted to amass a group of people, a group of, and I quote, little people who were little and cute and looked perfect as well. Like, I mean, it is, oh. yeah, the, the casting of it is... This is 1939. This is 1939, to be clear, but it is... Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Um. Yeah, I think the film suffers less than some of the films of the era, though, in terms of, you know, dated aspects. And I think some of that um, was kind of a narrow escape. You know, there were, uh, I think, one or two um, scenes that were going to include black performers that sound like they may well have been misjudged, but kind of ended up not being included in the film. Yeah, one of the uh, famous cut uh, musical numbers was Jitterbug, I believe, which was meant yeah. to be a reference to a contemporary dance craze. They cut it, apparently, officially the line is they cut it because they were worried that it would date the film and root it in 1939 when they wanted it to be timeless. It's mm. also been suggested by people aware of how the studio system works that they may have been wary of adapting a style of music and dance that was predominantly associated with African-Americans for a major kind of studio picture as well. Yeah, which is interesting because I believe Judy Garland in one of her films with Mickey Rooney had appeared in Blackface just a few years earlier. So obviously a very different time, but all the stuff about the Munchkins is fascinating because it kind of hits uh, one of the things you have to kind of reckon with when you read up on The Wizard of Oz, which is like this level of embellishment that's gone on over the years. Yeah. Because it seems to me like 
realistically, when the film was being made, I think for most people working on it, it would have been, I don't know about just a job. I mean, like I said, there was this kind of aura of distinction about the film because the sets were so impressive and so on. But for a lot of the people working on it, they would have had one eye on the next film coming down the line. Um, But subsequently, because it's become something that's resonated far beyond the immediate context of its release, you can kind of see people's attitudes change in these retrospective interviews over the years. And they start to realise how special it is. But it adds that layer of kind well, of myth to it, isn't it? To yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, like, there's yeah. an entire, like, Snopes, the website, has an entire section of the site that's dedicated to debunking myths about The Wizard of Oz. You know, stories about, like, how you, if you look close... Is closely, the Pink Floyd one true? Uh, the Pink Floyd one, well, there are coincidences that happen. Again, it's it wasn't designed in that way, but there are synchronicities that happen if you sync it up. I think it's with Leo's roar at the start mm. of the film. Uh, and again, we'll include that in the show notes. Uh, but even stories like, for example, about seeing shapes in the background of shots, when there's these rumors about where did people hang themselves on the set or whatever, and did they now haunt the film stock? It has this whole, it is, it, it's become a myth factory of itself, uh, which is kind of interesting. You know, this idea of something that was the product of a kind of a factory system, that was the product an authorless text, something that was a bunch of craftsmen doing the best job that they could, you know, working to their own ends and not necessarily the result of one single overriding vision, but that then becomes elevated to something that is that is mythical, that is almost like Oz itself. The film production becomes a source of all these stories and rumours and kind of speculation and gossip. And it, it has this power about it, which is just fascinating in hindsight. I imagine it's a nightmare for film historians, though, because it's very hard to weed out and say what's true. I do like, by the way, there was a contemporary quote... matter. No, I mean, like, yeah, and it, it it would be nice, I suppose, for these people's um, families um, to kind of have something definitive. But, I mean, if they want to say their grandfather was such and such a, um, like, like that nobody. Like, I, how much harm does it do? Kind of yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, by the way, I do love the, there's a contemporary quote from Jack Haley who stepped in to play the Tin Man. Um, and his response when asked whether it was fun to work on the film is, like hell it was fun, uh, <laughs> yeah. which is kind of great. It really gets that sense of being so tired. But we, it's interesting that we talk so much about the production and not so much about the, the film itself. What do we make of the film itself? Like in terms of like as a story, in terms of like it's as a piece of filmmaking, um, like it, it is a film that is ubiquitous. It's a film that you can almost replay in your mind scene, for, or at least I can almost replay in my mind scene from scene, despite the fact this was the first time I'd watched it in years. I think, I think like, I spoke about the kind of uh, what seems the morale of the movie. And I while while, while it's not something that's kind of in, um, that inspiring to me, I think it can't... Um, and what I mean is this kind of idea... There's no place like home. Of, yeah, and... Mm. And kind of tying into that as well, this idea as well of the things that you seek, um, you already have. Yeah. You know yeah. that the yeah. that the, um, the that, scarecrow that already the, has a brain. Scarecrow already has a brain because he starts hatching all of these schemes about how they're going to kind of yeah. um uh, break break break, break into, into the, the witcher which break out of the castle out with the guards and exactly. that sort of stuff as well and, that, and the tin that man the... has a heart because okay well the tin mm-hmm. man i don't know because he makes puns and jokes 
How was I really identified with the Tin Man? Yeah, we don't get much, that much from the, 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 the... He says I'm a little rusty. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm afraid I'm a little rusty. And it's, um, you know, the uh, the bit where he's like, oh, that's you all over when the Scarecrow has been yeah. sort of scattered to the wind. I'm like, yeah, he does have a heart. He has a great sense of humor. And then the, 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 lion. the lion um, kind of um, leading them all into um, the, castle. Uh, the, 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 the castle as well. And... Um, and of course, Dorothy being able just to click her feet to 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 bring herself back home, so that she she had she always had the slippers the, so from uh, the outset. Yeah, exactly. All she had to do was just as 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 Glinda points out, Glinda, who we may talk about in a moment, is a very interesting character. But Glinda's like, you just have to realize that there's no place like home, and it's like from the moment she arrived in Oz, it was very clear that Dorothy wanted to go home. It isn't like she had a big epiphany about how wondrous Oz was and how much she wanted to stay there. Mm. From the moment she arrived, she was trying to get to the wizard to get home, which is an interesting sort of angle. Yeah, but I think the longer you're away, oh, I... the more you realize. And that's maybe something that um, people realize as 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 they grow older. Because when, when yeah. um, I think Darren, similarly to me, mightn't have had the sense of being rooted kind of in a uh, community as a child yeah, uh, I moved yeah. around a lot I you know, was born in Dublin grew up in Ghana and West Africa and then moved back to Sligo um, and the same yeah. with myself I, I, I would have I would have moved around a lot within Sligo I would have lived in kind of uh, Donegal and um, in Balna moved back to Sligo been in, in Dublin lived in London for a few years back in Sligo back in Dublin so yeah not not um, but I think growing, growing older, kind of um, sometimes, you realizing the the kind of importance of home. I think it's possible to hold a kind of an ambition for mm. um, the world, um, the 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 greater world, and wanting wanting to see more and expand your horizons, and still being able to kind of maintain um that attachment uh to home so 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 i think may, maybe the kind of point of this movie isn't to um i think for a lot of people it can be for 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 these kind of um it it's it's interesting um i mean we we spoke about mr smith um but yeah. another um uh frank capra a, a Jimmy Stewart movie It's a Wonderful Life is yeah. is kind of a, has some of the same sort of um, you don't need to thematic leave. elements yeah, yeah. you don't need to leave Bedford Falls for, for, you just need to learn that you're happy there and I think that's the realisation of of this it's a weird sort of a um, a, um, a retort to urbanisation and um, a, you know the the uh, yeah. movement. Yeah, well, my yeah migration from the sort of even from like the the American kind of like Midwest towards the cities, which would have been happening around the same time with industrialization that sort of stuff. Again, there are lots and lots of interpretations of the Wizard of Oz. Carl kind of mentioned a couple of them. I do really like um, just one that uh, that puts it in the context of like a very specific cultural context in terms of like the novel's original release, which is that it was a criticism of the populist party. Uh, which existed very, very briefly in American history at the turn of the 20th century. But then like, who wanted to make America great again? <laughs> pretty much. Um, but no, it was it was basically rooted in this idea. The Populist Party ran on the idea that they would convert from the gold standard to the silver standard. 
And this was, you know, to some people was an inherently silly idea because like there were more important things happening in terms of politics that moment in time. So having a platform that was built entirely about swapping from gold to silver was very, very silly. Uh, but the idea that Baum structured the movie as a critique of that, that like, for example, the story he liked to tell about the name Oz coming from a filing cabinet labeled O to mm. Z, that it was yeah. possible to read that as Oz for the, the ounce, which is the measure oh, of yeah. like gold or silver. The idea of the silver slippers that Dorothy wore being particularly important in that context. But even things like the use of the Tin Man, who represented mm. the unemployed industrial worker who was rusting with idleness. The Scarecrow as the farmer who didn't have the leadership and sense to take his own political fight and the cowardly lion as brian himself the sort of the populist party candidate um who sort of like existed to kind of to to try with bluster um to try and stand up but not really stand up for what he believed i think i had heard that before and as you say that all out loud it's it does not sound convincing i know (laughs) um i i can't imagine that um one one interpretation that came to me um as I was watching the movie as I I I fell asleep at a very um apropos <laughs> time during the movie because uh, la- la- last night and this morning I was watching other movies for this podcast they didn't grab a lot of sleep and I decided uh, my back is at me a bit I'm just going to lie down on this couch while I, while I watch the movie and I'll be fine but I fell asleep at the perfect time when they were going through changes to color. The, the no, when they were going through the field of um, of poppies. Oh yeah. And then I woke up from it. and It's like, oh, how did I wake up? Oh, the um, uh, uh, Glinda. Uh, Glinda made it snow, and I was like, oh, okay. I, but I think we we. So it's about mixing your downers and your uppers. Yeah, your it's a it's a speed, speedball. I think is what that's <laughs> called. Darren and I made a decision when watching it. Not to take any mind-altering substances. <laughs> um, the film itself is the mind-altering So we substance. can't comment on what the movie is like under those circumstances. But it does... It, does, it is a movie that's uh, friendly, maybe, to that interpretation. Yeah. Where it's, it, it's about drugs. It's not quite Alice in Wonderland with the kind of... <laughs> yeah. uh, Trippiness of uh, it. Uh, sitting on a mushroom, smoking a hookah. But um, it's yeah. close. There's another um, interesting element to that scene with the good witch using snow uh, as an antidote, isn't it? And I think that's one of a couple of things that actually originated in the stage production from the early 1900s that then made their way into the film. Um, And there are other... Yeah, it's like all these elements of the film that were inspired by the earlier adaptations are fascinating. Like the switch from black and white to colour that's supposed to have happened in a 1933 Wizard of Oz cartoon short that's now quite obscure. So it's interesting that the film's like this weird intertextual mosaic, isn't it? In a way that's surprisingly sophisticated. But I think times had kind of a flattening effect on that in the sense that a viewer in 1939 might have seen the 25 version. Yeah. They might have seen the stage version, possibly. They might have perceived at least some of these influences in a way that I think very few of us would today. And I think perhaps that's contributed to this idea that this version of The Wizard of Oz is the ultimate version of the story, even beyond the like the book. And again, it's to do with stuff like the slippers, the red slippers, like you've already mentioned, Darren, which interestingly weren't actually red. They were like a deep burgundy or something, because that's what would show up best in this uh, free strip Technicolor process. Which uh, And when you wanted a cow, you had to sell it to yeah. a bunch of cats together. Well, um, yeah, they... they um... What what color were those horses painted? Would would Philomena would 
Will filmmakers stop painting horses? <laughs> We've already seen this in um, uh, early, early, earlier this year um, in, um, sorry, what's it called again? Uh, Life is Beautiful? Yes. Yeah, yes, we had yes. a green horse. We did have a green horse. Now, to be and fair, that was painted four... by Nazis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, well, we don't know that these ones weren't painted by Nazis. That's fair. 1939 was all about, you know, painting horses. Um, Lee Marvin's <laughs> original draft of Gonna Paint Your Wagon was a very, very different film. Uh, or he was very, very yeah. drunk while doing it and accidentally starting to fad. Just actually very quickly on Glinda, because Glinda is a character that I find fascinating. Again, one wonders if it's possible, if it's even possible to read too much into The Wizard of Oz. But there's this weird thing where Glinda She's knows... She's a good-looking witch. <laughs> she, yeah, that's it. The, only bad witches are ugly. Um, one of those great fairy tale sort of messages to internalize <laughs> there. And again, like part of me is wondering how much of this is down to me being skeptical versus how much the Wizard of Oz... Only is. ugly witches are bad? <laughs> Um, that logic doesn't flow one from the other, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, th- there's this question about, um, you know, how much of like wondering about the Wizard of Oz comes from watching the Wizard of Oz and how much of it has been sort of deconstructed and picked apart and things like Wicked, for example. But it is kind of interesting to think about how Oz actually works. Uh, because again, we, we've grown so con- so accustomed to this idea of kind of like world building in modern films yeah. and sort of the idea that things hold together. I'm, like I'm Tolkien- interested in this. I'm yeah. interested in how the kingdom uh, went because as I was watching the movie, I don't think when I had seen this movie as a child, I hadn't I I hadn't yet seen all was it seven seasons of Game of Thrones? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so um when when the Wicked Witch of the West uh, flew over the Emerald City. You were said, thinking it was going to go very, uh, very different. Yeah, I was thinking, they're, they're like, ring the bells! Um, um, so she it's was like, Sur- surrender. Surrender Dorothy. Uh, yeah, and I was just thinking of Daenerys Targaryen. Sitting and then, up there on her dragon. Yeah, and then at the end, when they decide, like, who's going to rule, it's like, well, there'll be uh, three of you. Yes. Um, I don't see this ending badly at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they've consolidated power at the end, because the... the uh, the the witch of the east and the witch of the west have both been killed. The yep. the emerald uh, <laughs> city has been taken over by a committee. Yeah. Um, Glinda um, is is she going to um, like presumably she has the experience. She could she could quite easily usurp the whole thing. Well, I mean that that's take again, the take the silver throne. Well, this is one of the things about um, again. This is wicked. I think the the novel and the, the stage play kind of get at this, which is this idea of trying to apply that sort of world building to Oz that we associate with things like, yeah. for example, um, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings to pick an example from the nineteen thirties in terms of storytelling and novels, but even later things like say Star Wars and the way Lucas built that universe. But even as you point out, Game of Thrones and how difficult it is to make sense of that because if you try and build a larger picture like you have to like account for things that make little or no sense which is grand because it's a children's film but i did love the idea that like the munchkins are celebrating the death of the wicked witch of the yeah i was of... gonna ask is it a children's <laughs> film yeah but which is dead which or which the wicked witch um we're so glad that witch is dead and we're only saying witch because it's a family-friendly film um but like this is a day of liberation they're waiting for the moment where they take her head and dangle it over the parapet but no more seriously though i find it fascinating that like munchkin land doesn't actually look like a hellscape it doesn't look like a dystopia it doesn't look like like what 
why are they so anxious for the wicked witch of the West to have died? Like, what mm. was she doing? They have they appear to have full employment. They've got a strong education system. <laughs> yeah. They've well, got the a working only, doctor. The, the Lollipop League is the Lullaby League is there. The Lollipop Guild are operating at peak efficiency. Well, they've that's got an the only mayor. reason they've been able to resist the the wicked witch of the East for so long. Is strong institutions that she's consistently <laughs> trying to erode. Uh, the the erasure of kind of Oz's social norms yeah 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 Yeah. and it's uh, like every day she's saying something new that that would be completely unthinkable uh, a couple uh, of years ago uh, previously yeah Um, yeah just on um, just very quickly on Ding Dong the Witch is Dead that provided like I think one of the most curious retroactive Oz references didn't it when uh, in the UK that went up into the pop charts after Baroness Thatcher died, um, which is kind of interesting. Yes, but they, they, the thing they about Oz, to get it I think, is that in the end, I know they were trying to. I know there was a campaign to. Did they get it to one or did it peak at two? I can't remember if it got to one. I remember that uh, the the Radio One chart show wouldn't play it. I think. Ah, okay. It's kind of interesting when you consider what they would you know, play. Some of, some, some of some of the things they do play, some of the hip hop uh, tracks, things like that. Um, one of the interesting things about Oz and Salman Rushdie talks about this a bit. I think is. How well he refers to it as breezily godless, um, in yes. a way that's quite different from the book, apparently. Now, L. Frank Baum was apparently skeptical of organized religion, uh, without being an atheist. I think he was interested in theosophy, is what I've read. Um, so the wizard in the book is said to be a thinly veiled reference to you know the traditional kind of Judeo Christian conception of God. So it's kind of interesting to consider how the, the way the film is different from the book kind of alters that. Because there was an essay I, re- I read by a guy called uh, Justin Reams. And what he says is that the film, because it makes Oz this dreamscape, you know, where the most simple reading of the film is that this all takes place in Dorothy's head. He actually says that's quite a radical shift. So it extends Baum's scepticism of organized religion into a scepticism of all things spiritual or supernatural. So whether or not you buy that, or not. It's kind of funny to consider that alongside the fact that the Vatican put The Wizard of Oz on the greatest films list at one point that they produced. Um, I do like his reading of the film in the sense that it elevates the film's ending beyond mere cliche. Although I'm not sure how intentional that was. Well, I mean, I, I think actually, I, I kind of go even further. I think that one of the things that's striking about um, The Wizard of Oz is how it extrapolates that idea of kind of criticizing or being skeptical of religion to being skeptical of institutions in general like the the wizard is you know not just in the film is not necessarily like a religious kind of theocratic figure he's arguably a, a politician a leader a sort of like a keen scientific mind right. if you want to read it that way you know he's an opportunist that's well that's it exactly he's a con man he's a huckster he's a fraudster uh, but he is like when dorothy goes to the emerald city the wizard is quite literally most of the population. He's the guy who opens the door. He's the guy who drives the horse of a different color. He's the man who goes in and talks to the wizard. Like they're all the wizard. The wizard is absolutely every part of the infrastructure of the Emerald City. I and love the guard crying. Yes, the, the, that wonderful reaction shot of the face where it's just kind of slathered. Like, yeah, like uh, we discussed the extras too. Like Richard Burton's tears. Yeah, like Richard Burton's sweat. Uh, which is again, he like laughed out loud. I laughed at so many uh, uh, parts of this movie. Well, it's it's very very funny. It's like mm. a re- even today, it's aged remarkably well. And part of me wonders if I got all the jokes when I was a kid, or how earnest I thought it was. So things like, for example, the the sequence where the wizard goes through and gives. He first of all he says, you know, I'm not a very good wizard, but he also gives each of the three companions 
these ridiculously absurd, completely pointless things that have very little to do in a very meaningful sense with what they want, but have this superficial connection to them. So it's like, uh, Scarecrow, you want to be smart. Well, I can't make you smart, but what I can do is I can give you a degree. Um, Or, you know, the bit with the Tin Man where it's like, well, I can't, you know, I can't give you a heart because you already have one, but I can give you a commendation. And it's like, Lion, I can't... Testimonial. Testimonial, yeah. Lion, I can't make you brave, but uh, here's a medal. Um, And it kind of, like... It's very spoof. It's very kind of sarcastic and wry and biting. Well, and it, but it's also um, affirming. Yeah. yeah. Because um, so it it it's it's incredible because it works on both of those levels. Yes. And there's so much satire in this movie because they 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 talk about kind of some people without brains do a lot of the talking. Yeah. Which may be as true <laughs> now, now as, as it was, was then. Um. And 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 podcasts are just one example of that, um, but um, uh, the um, no, it's 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 incredible. All of um, all of his lines, kind of the wizard as well. Yeah. Um. There's just so such rich satire in them without being um, uh, nihilistic. Like there, yeah. there is something very um. Uh, humane about that 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 whole idea of 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 celebrating the actual value of um of these characters um and them um realizing their own value yeah and then the little joke cherry on top of just giving them something completely meaningless as well because they already have what they need yeah Uh, like and again that that's the thing where it works so well at balancing the two and i was surprised again watching as an adult part of me wonders if as a kid i really got that level of what was going on and that's because it's not really it's not really cynicism but it is a little bit sly and a little bit playful and there's a lot i mean it's both yeah that's that's which which is why it's so um kind of uh, effective yeah yeah so deft yeah i think i think there's more to be said about the ending as well i know andrew's talked about um, being a bit uneasy with the moral and so on, but it's interesting. I think so. The key line I think is when Dorothy says, "If I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't go looking further than my own backyard." And what's interesting about that is apparently that's a bit of a change of emphasis from Baum's original book. Um, and because you know, because it's delivered to us in the final scene of the film, we sort of immediately take it to have a high, de- you know, to have a high degree of importance. What's the thesis of the film. It's the conclusion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, that hits at something very interesting about old Hollywood, I think, in that because you had this studio system which generally is stuck to pretty preordained narrative structures. Uh, they were governed by the production code, of course. So you often do end up with films that ideologically offer you a fairly small C conservative message at the end. Right. You know, any any suggestive, troublesome, or less conventional elements are resolved by the end of a narrative. Uh, for instance, Darren and I talked about this on the movie Palace in relation to um, Gilda um, a while ago. But another way of looking at that at then the, is at the end of um, M as well. There's this kind of yeah. there, um, or at the end of Psycho. There, yeah, there, so they there, have what they where they explain neatly there, to the audience. Exactly. These very kind of uh, uh, moralistic kind of yeah, yeah, where 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 they say, So you see, audience, it was So forget any original thoughts you've had about well, what you just watched and let us tell you. Well, so the question the question is, and the question we can kind of debate, I guess, is like because of those constrictions, do we have to look beyond like the narrative trajectory 
for more subversive elements? How much emphasis do we place on the fact that stories end in a particular way? Because something like Somewhere Over the Rainbow seems to be offering quite a different, almost conflicting ideology, doesn't it? So what signifies the loudest? Is it the ending of the film or is it other aspects of the film? Yeah, and it's it's difficult to discount that because of the power that that song holds. Well, that's arguably the part of the film that endures the most. You know, I mean, there's no place like home is a powerful expression. People are familiar with it. People know it. And if you said it from the film, but somewhere over the rainbow is the the part of the film that you probably encountered most, like the most extended part of the film that you've encountered in pop culture. The various cover versions, the way in which it's been invoked, the way in which you can say somewhere over the rainbow and just have this whole notion of ideas kind of come at you. So that's it exactly, isn't it? So it resonates independently of the narrative from which it sprung forth. Uh, but even within the film, you know, the Somewhere Over the Rainbow melody is repeated over the closing credits, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? In that the film's just told you about No Place Like Home. And then you still get this kind of refrain of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. So there's this kind of interesting tension. Well, I mean, it, that you... tension's arguably even there in the opening text that's there. You know, it's like they yeah. talk about like the power of the film, the power of the story and the generations that it's inspired and how time has done little to dilute its purity and its meaning, which is, again, it's a very sort of small C conservative message, which is this idea of, well, this is a film about core values and those core values can't be like changed by shifting norms and that sort of stuff. But at the same time, that same title card ends with, this is for all the dreamers out there. This is for everybody who's ever sort of yeah. like dreamt yeah. and, and wandered and wanted um, to explore. I and think, you have that push and pull. I, yeah, I, 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 think, I think it's very kind of um, accurate to describe it as a push and pull because we, we, we tend to want a movie or a piece of art sometimes to have a thesis um, that, that you can either identify with or reject. But sometimes the 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 best art, and I I think the the kind of like the, um in, I think in Japanese aesthetics they talk a lot about, um dichotomies, mm. and about presenting uh the these these dichotomies so they often they they almost kind of um stack up against each other, mm. like this 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 idea of, um somewhere over the uh the 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 rainbow and there there's no thing like home as these um uh competing ideologies that sit within the same um where it's one um where it's kind of a a a, a thesis being um uh tackled by by its antithesis and yeah, I mean, the so idea if, that it's up to you as an audience member to find your way of resolving that kind yeah, of yeah yeah or not to resolve yeah. them yeah, that's yeah. An order where you fall on them or how you balance the two. Yeah, because there's an essay on the film by somebody called Linda Page, and she kind of puts forward um, a less positive case, I suppose. So Dorothy chooses poorly. She succumbs to the patriarchal voices of her subconscious. She represses her imagination. She wastes her powers. I like the other way of thinking more, you know, about going beyond story trajectory. And I think it's because it opens up all sorts of ways about thinking, not just about The Wizard of Oz. Uh, and individual elements of it, um, but other films too, and in a way that can then become about kind of reclaiming and repositioning things that are undercut by the kind of uh, governing ethos of the time. But I'm I'm wondering sometimes whether that's too celebratory a way of trying to reconcile things like formulaic storytelling, the Hayes Code, uh, and so on. Is it is it on there? Yeah. Yeah. Is it is it kind of um, trying to what trying to kind of give those things a pass? I don't know. 
By the way, I love that description of it pretty much explains the starting point of Return to Oz as a film. I don't know if any of you watched it, but Return to Oz is basically, yeah, what if Dorothy had a nervous breakdown after coming back from Oz and how horribly messed up that would be. And if she were to return to this dream world, how horribly messed up would that dream world be as a result of kind of the way in which she sort of like rejected and processed and tried to work through like what happened to her or the way in which she sort of like, you know, rejected the idea of kind of fantasy and escape. And it kind of like it's kind of interesting to read Return to Oz because Return to Oz almost feels like it's engaging with that criticism. Um, although I'm not, I'm still not sure it's a particularly. I I have a soft spot for it, but it's not a great film. I like Return to Oz, but it's been quite some time since I've seen it. I I also somewhat enjoyed uh, Sam Raimi's uh, Oz, Oz the Great, great Powerful. Powerful. Yeah, which I think was one of the few films I saw of that kind of wave of 3D filmmaking that used it quite effectively. Um, but that's kind of interesting the way they tackle the Wizard of Oz subsequent, uh, you know, later filmmakers tackle it. You know, it seems to be one of those films that's almost considered sacrosanct from old Hollywood in the sense that you can do a sequel, you can do some kind of spin off or prequel, you can do the Muppets Wizard of Oz. The but Wiz, I think for example, with Diana the Wiz, Robson yeah, you can Michael shift Jackson. the narrative. Don yeah, DeMello's do- Disney's The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah, you can do those kind of things. Later. But it seems to me like one of those films like Casablanca that would generate kind of a lot of disquiet if a studio announced a full-fledged new adaptation of The Wizard of Oz. And I don't know, that's kind of a shame, I think, in the sense that I'm very sanguine about the idea of like film remakes and reboots at a time when it seems like very few people um, have that attitude. It seems like, you know, people regard such things with horror when you hear about like Home Alone or The Princess Bride um, possibly being remade. But I think The Wizard of Oz would be one of those texts too that people would kind of be up in arms about you know well, which is it's strange because like one of the things that i think makes the wizard of oz as effective as it is is the way in which well first of all you describe the way in which it cobbles together elements from earlier adaptation yeah. of the story to create almost like a a your adaptation of the story yeah. like every adaptation of the wizard of oz is this adaptation but even things like the way in which the film itself kind of like becomes a celebration of that like where you have dorothy appropriating all of these elements from her life you know the issue that she has with elmira and transforming her into a witch after she calls her a witch you know having Aunt M become the Emerald City that she sort of wants to go towards or, you know, Professor Marvel serving as the Wizard of Oz, this sort of like convincing charlatan and stuff like that. And the way in which these ideas are reprocessed and couldn't, reworked couldn't and reconceptualized be made, and Couldn't re-imagined. be made now anyway, this movie. Because <laughs> it couldn't be like, oh, get into my van. Yeah, okay, that, that was a real, that was a real strange <laughs> yeah. moment to watch in 2019. That, yeah. Where he's like, oh, we're outside the public. Step into my private little van here and we'll, we'll get you sorted, uh, which is very, very creepy. But I, I, it, it's interesting because, yeah, I think, I think you're onto something there. I'm, I'm not as skeptic, inherently skeptical as remakes uh, as other people are. And I'm kind of, I maybe not quite as optimistic I don't or think, hopeful as you are. I don't think other well, people are that skeptical as, as, as we're giving them credit for. I think every time, every time a, a new um, remake gets brought up, I always hear people saying, oh, why do they have to remake all these movies all the time? It's because they make hundreds of millions of dollars. Yes. So if well, you if you yeah. think that that there's no need for for these movies to 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 get made, then maybe you're in the minority because it seems that, that people are very people happy to go and are see very the Lion King and Aladdin and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, it's also like you know, um, the Wizard of Oz, I guess, would be the key example of you know how remakes can be you know a great thing, or you could point to films like The Maltese Falcon. But I think another way of thinking about it is remaking is just a form of adaptation which i don't think people always 
um, see it as such. I don't think there's anything inherently uncreative about it because the thing is that even somebody trying to imitate something exactly won't produce a carbon copy. So something like Gus Van Sant's Psycho. Yes, that's exactly where my mind went as well. Yeah. And most remakes, to be fair, aren't attempting that. There are usually efforts to kind of make a film more contemporary or to distinguish it in some way. I think there is maybe a historical basis for this um, aversion to remakes that's kind of interesting, though. And again, it's not really was was related, but it used to be the case it could become harder to see certain films if they were remade. So something like John Ford's Stagecoach, to, to go back to the 1939 theme, when that was remade in the 1960s, it suddenly became difficult to see Ford's film. And was supplanted you know. by it almost. Yeah, it was kind of out of circulation for a while. So I can perhaps understand remake unease in that sense. It's not impossible to imagine a scenario such as that playing out today in a different form with different technology. But in most cases, there's a practical remedy, isn't there? Which is to procure a physical copy of a film you yeah. cherish and to I mean, hold on to it. You know? I mean, even then, like stuff like studios tend to use remakes like A Star is Born as an excuse to push their back catalogue. Warner, you yeah. know, we're selling online. They're selling the Barbara Streisand version. They were selling the, uh, you know, Judy Garland version as well. The 1930s version was actually in the public domain, so they weren't selling that one. But you could download that one, you know, of yourself. But Beauty, and like, Beast, Beauty and uh, the Beast jumped into the 250. Yeah, Aladdin came into the 250 as Aladdin. well. Coinciding yeah. with its live action, so you have this idea that like remakes become an excuse to celebrate original film to a certain extent, to celebrate the original films as well. Like it's an. If excuse... our listeners are really good, yeah, we might do an Aladdin. If if our listeners are very very good, we might <laughs> yeah, do Aladdin. Yeah, Cosby but we need news. more followers, more more reviews, in <laughs> <laughs> um, more of our tweets retweeted. Um, thank thank you, Andrew. And then maybe. Um, but yeah, no, I I think there is. But what's interesting though about the, the Wizard of Oz is that like you mentioned that earlier where remaking the film itself seems you know the film itself seems sacrosanct but you have this history of approaching it through different angles I mean we were joking about like the politics of Oz but the politics of Oz become Wicked which is its own cultural phenomenon the Broadway smash musical which I'm surprised hasn't been adapted into a film itself um, you know the novel becomes the musical um, and I'm surprised the musical hasn't become kind mm, of a, yeah. a, an adaptation of itself but it deals with things like it approaches because Oz is such a gigantic thing because it's such a huge potent cultural force it comes at it at a slightly different angle and it asks well really you know what is it about the wicked witch that's that's wicked what do we actually see her do that's wicked like what is what is she so bad why is she so evil and you know is it yeah, she 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 definitely has her strong points like she knows how to do entrances and exits yeah um which again that's one of the interesting trivia things about the film isn't it just to kind of bring it down to that level but uh, Margaret Hamilton, I think, quite badly burnt. You know, yes. this thing where she disappears into the ground. I think there's a trap door. And it's, then it's flames in, kind of spit it's up. It's in the Munchkin it? Village, is the one. That's the yeah. one that oh, almost yeah. killed her. Because um, flames do come up when she disappears into the trap door. She described, I think, as an oven, if I remember correctly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's more to be said. I know we've talked a lot about the kind of um, production and so on, but even more, I mean, like the costuming is really interesting. So, by a guy called Adrian which uh, Gilbert Adrian, but just known by his surname, uh, MGM's premier costume designer. Uh, I guess known for his costumes was people like Joan Crawford and Garb- uh, Greta Garbo. Uh, he married uh, Janet Gaynor. But I think we shouldn't underplay. I think a film like this represented not just an immense challenge for people like him, but also an invigorating one because it because it was this fantasy setting. He wasn't tied down by things like historical accuracy as he would have been with uh, costume pictures 
But one of the really interesting stories, and I hadn't fully appreciated this myself until I started reading around this week, is the creative impositions that Technicolor created, um, you know, had these repercussions for people like the costume team, because certain colors would translate to film so inconsistently. So like a pale blue could be washed out when it um, was processed on film. Yellows could come out looking green or orange. Um, so apparently there was like a stand-up kind of heated confrontation at one point between Adrian and um, the, the color director. And the cinematographer had to be this kind of mediator. He had to work up like a six-page guide of relative color values to help with makeup and costumes. So I think in the film, what's really impressive is there's a fluidity to the filmmaking. But these Technicolor cameras were like these gigantic things. They were meant to weigh like 400 pounds or something. So considering that, the sort of the fluidness of the camera and all the movement and like that shot when you first go into Oz uh, and you see, see the land and so on. It's really astonishing. It's it's a, a marvelous technical feat. This film. It is indeed, and again, like that's the thing with that shot. We talk about the transition and the way in which it goes from kind of sepia tinted to color, which is striking of itself. But once that happens, the camera becomes a lot more adventurous and a lot less sort of static. Yeah. It's you know the camera moves earlier on. You have tracking shots, and you've got like scenes where characters will run across, and the camera will follow them. But like, there's nothing as impressive as that sequence when Dorothy goes to the door, and the camera literally takes you on a tour, a tour, this wonderful kind of slow movement through the trees and kind of around circling coming back to meet Dorothy on the other side of the bridge between the yellow brick and red brick roads which is just this wonderful kind of move where the film is like yes breathe it all in where what does a- the red brick road go that's a question I'm not I'm not entirely sure myself um, probably into a matte painting into a cardboard plywood do- a sequel <laughs> yes yeah. Um, a sequel sort of slow kind of spin off there as well um, but actually to bring that we back we don't know about the the, um, the witch of the south She's left out as well. And Glinda, Glinda, as I mentioned earlier, is an interesting character because Glinda, there's this, and again, this is probably because you're watching it as an adult. I love Glinda, don't you? <laughs> but where she's talking about, like, there's this motif of, like, what does Glinda know and when does Glinda know it? Uh, which is when, you know, because <laughs> yeah. so, there's this sense throughout that she's, are you a good witch or a bad witch? And she's sort of portrayed as this vaguely innocent figure, but she's also somewhat omniscient and, you know, omnipotent, uh, omnipotent as well, where she can do things like, you know, she chides, you know, the wicked witch about, aren't you forgetting about the slippers? And then the slippers just happen to appear on Dorothy's feet. Oh, what a coincidence. (laughs) There's a moment where she says, uh, when she's talking to Dorothy and she's like, those slippers, you know, the ones that I just drew the Wicked Witch's attention to because I'm guessing they're important to her. Well, they must be very powerful or else she wouldn't want them so badly. I clearly don't know anything about that. Never mind. Um, or even like later on where she explains, oh, by the way, to get home, all you need to do is click those heels together. Not that I know anything about those shoes at all. Uh, but there is this kind of weird sense, even like before Wicked, even before I knew what Wicked was, that like there's this sense in Oz that, there's stuff that's not quite right. There's the the weird thing where the, the wizard is like, bring me the broom of the Wicked Witch of the West. And you're like, well, what is his long game here? Is he planning to just like destabilize the region? Or does he like want Dorothy to get killed so he doesn't have to worry about this anymore? What is what what is his game here? What is he planning? What what does anybody do with that broom once they bring it back to the Emerald City? Why does he set this mythical quest for her? Aside from the fact that it gives the film a nice sort of third act action beat, which I kind of and I kind of like, you know, I kind of like that randomness to it. Um, and I like the fact that it doesn't make sense. He it's feels nonsense. threatened by the Wicked Witch of the West. 
she's she's obviously going to do something bad to the city because she's saying like surrender Dorothy and they're like oh god we better do it yeah. so he, yeah. he says hey you've got the you're 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 the um the the, the, the witch, target here which yeah. of the 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 veil you have those uh, red slippers you can um take care of this for us right exactly yeah yeah, yeah. I, and i think it also ties into unwittingly the witch has like left the emerald city to its own devices and governance <laughs> up until this sort of dorothy gale arrives and causes a political crisis well, do we know that the uh, that the emerald city is ruled by um i think it's ruled by the uh wizard of 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 oz yeah and that the um and that the uh, four uh, n- n- none of the four witches rule the um, Emerald City. So what you're saying is the death of the Wicked Witch of the East was a destabilizing element, actually. And so the Wicked Witch of the West is hoping to move into that power. Oh, yeah. No, the, the, the Wizard of Oz wouldn't have position. dreamed of of suggesting a, a, a power play. Uh, it's just the opportunity presented. Things are itself. different now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The rules have changed. I love the idea that he could just hop in his balloon and go home, by the way. And it's just like, no, no, no. I want you to kill the Wicked Witch You think first. he's going home? I don't think he knows where he's going. <laughs> That's a fair point. Sorry, Carl. Um, no, it's okay. Uh, the thing about Oz's meaningless quest, you know, bring me the broom and all that. I had kind of a, a thought as I was watching the film today. And I think it unwittingly ties into uh, something that Michel Foucault kind of outlined Um and it fits in, it kind of chimes with this film fairly well, I think. He talked about, he said the 19th century was defined by an obsession with history. The 20th became defined by anxieties about space. And he says that the way our cultures kind of set up space is they're ruled by a certain number of opposites, you know. So you have like work and pleasure, urban and rural, and so on. And of course, in this film, we have Oz and Kansas. Yeah. And Foucault talked about locations which... Uh, are endowed with the curious property of being in relation with all the others, but in such a way as to suspend, neutralize, or invert the set of relationships designed, reflected, or mirrored by themselves. So basically, he said that we had, um, you know, society produced practical utopias called heterotopias, a place that lies outside all places and yet is actually localizable. And I was kind of thinking, well, that's Oz, isn't it? You know, so. All the stuff that Foucault kind of said, he, he kind of outlines these principles about how these spaces work. You know, you can only enter a heterotopia by special permission. I think that applies to the Emerald City. Yeah. He talks about the importance of completing gestures to navigate heterotopias. So you've got to wear the red slippers, you've got to follow the yellow brick road, you've got to bring me the broom, so on and so forth. So, I don't know, I guess it all fits really well with this film. The way the filmmaking, though, like we said, this fluidness to the filmmaking, the shift into colour... So the fluidness in Oz as opposed to, um, you know, Kansas. more so than in Kansas. Yeah. So I could see somebody finding those binaries that the film sets up a little bit crude, perhaps. And I think that's sometimes why people find the ending a bit cliched or whatever. But I think that's what the film gets powerfully right. I think it chimes with the way space is organized in the real world in a funny sort of way. Um, but it, it gets a nice, um, it's expressed very well here in a nice dramatic fashion and a comedic one. And it's kind of it is interesting in terms of of Oz as well the way it's portrayed and we joked about the the wizard being ineffectual, but the men of Oz are traditionally presented as as ineffectual. Yeah. The film is surprisingly you know I don't want to call it overly progressive for a film that's you know there's no place like home as much as we discuss that dichotomy existing there. But it's interesting that how many of the powerful actors within Oz 
are the women rather than the um, than the men. You know, Oz the Great and Powerful is revealed to be impotent rather than omnipotent, yep. for example. But it's like the, the Wicked Witch is a threat. But even like Glinda, you know, seems to be pulling the kind of strings going on here as well. But the fact that like Dorothy is this agent of change and she ends up bringing the, you know, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion together and kind of teaching them that they have all the virtues that they need all along. But it's her journey that they all go on. I think Salman Rushdie has also argued that one of the things that gives them... I never them... realised Salman Rushdie had so many things to say about The Wizard of Oz. Films, yeah. Yeah. He wrote the BFI book about it, I think. Really? Well. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's a big, so. big fan as well. He's talked about seeing it for the first time as well. We'll include links in the show notes. Uh, but he's argued that like one of the things that resonates in the film, and it kind of... I think that's why he doesn't come back to that, like, there's no place like home, is that he sees the film as again a gener- a generational struggle and we talk about the film being a quintessentially american mythology and again it's yeah. the overlap between something like star wars as well i would argue has a similar motif but this idea of throughout the film dorothy is presented with first of all well evil older authority figures so you know almira gold she owns like half the county and it's so powerful that she seems to have the sheriff in her pocket and so there's no you know she can bend the law to serve her means but even outside of that the idea of dorothy's parents the people who are oh sorry aunt and uncle um are supposed to protect her who are supposed to guide her they're ineffectual as well it's like well henry you're not going to let let her do this and henry's like no no i'd never let her do this and then she produces the war and mm. it's like well we better let her do this then um but <laughs> yeah. uh, even then when dorothy goes off to oz and it's like well find the wizard of oz the wizard of oz will be the one who can help you get home and it turns out he's just a bumbling idiot who has no idea what he's actually doing and no sense of where he's going so it's up to dorothy as a young person to kind of to go on this journey and to make sense she literally blows through oz like a gale deposited by a tornado a force of nature and radically upends the social order it's dorothy as... gale isn't that her name yeah that's, yeah, a, yeah, that's, that's true a... but she radically oppo- upends the kind of social order and the social structures of oz and kind of changes them in a way that kind of reshapes the, the landscape both literally and kind of figuratively in as a well. very satisfying way for her i'm sure because she's introduced as the most annoying person <laughs> but, but 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 also it, it, it's entirely possible to ignore her um uh so the 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 adults are kind of you know getting on doing their own thing in spite of um uh her kind of Uh, just uh, trying to you know interrupt yeah they're they're, they're concerned with worldly concerns they're literally counting chickens they're taking livestock as it were uh of their situation and she's she's trying to explain what's happened and they're 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 kind of like uh, could you just um um they're 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 not interested to the point that when um when Elmira Gulch comes along and explains what's happened, it's like the first time he's heard <laughs> They've it. They've heard Because uh, he's, he's like, oh, Doherty bit you? And it's like, no, her dog. Oh, she, she, bit, she bit her dog? Um, so, yeah. which, which, which is hilarious, by the way. I, re- I, really, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, there was just another point I wanted to make about Dorothy, I think. Well, about Garland, really, in that I don't think it's impossible to imagine a young performer kind of overdoing the perkiness in a story like this well they, they did originally want shirley temple i believe she was originally yeah. the most wanted kind of cast member i can honestly i i this may be a bit unkind to garland but i feel like a, a, you could have put a lot of people in here 
Well, one of the interesting things is that she was apparently given a very different performance at first. She was under a blonde wig, under heavy makeup. And when we had this kind of cavalcade of directors, I think George Cukor is supposed to have said, you know, we need new hair and wardrobe tests for Garland. And he didn't like a performance. So he's kind of to be thanked for that um, kind of change in, change in emphasis. But, it, but is, her, is her performance that great? I think it is a good performance, but I think it hints at something interesting, which is that, so we've talked about, you know, MGM's accomplishments here. And again, it's a great example of like their modus operandi. You often hear people comment on MGM's lavishness and glamour, but what also seems to come up a lot in comments about The Wizard of Oz is their attention to detail. You know, exacting standards led to people doing a lot of their very best work. The studio wanted to show it off, etc. You get very brightly lit set so you can see every kind of dollar that's put upon yeah. the screen. But there's a flip side to that, which is more negative, more sad. And I think Darren's actually alluded to it much earlier, which is that Garland, I think, was a great star. You know, she was famous before this. She played opposite Mickey Rooney in a lot of films. But her treatment by MGM kind of shows the dark side of that exactingness, I think. You know, the studio apparently always concerned with her weight. They would give her her, uh, give her pills designed to kind of um, keep her appetite down, I think, is the implication. And sleeping pills to a lot of their stars as well. They'd work these people as hard as they could. They were on quite grueling regimes. The costumes designed to, to accentuate her figure, but even here, to, to kind of her, her, best, yeah. her breasts were bound, I think, as well, to make her play younger yeah. and stuff like that. So, so for all that The Wizard of Oz is a great career triumph for her, it's, you know, it's a signature role, really, along with stuff like Meet Me in St. Louis and, you know, A Star is Born and so on. But there's kind of an undertow to that success, which is pretty unsavory and saddening, I think. And I don't know. I, it's something about that makes me a bit uneasy. But I, I, I would, I think a performance is good, Andrew. Right? Yeah, actually. <laughs> well, here, just in terms of of Garland, actually, it's worth noting that when she passed away, you know, she was only forty seven years old. But on June twenty second, nineteen sixty nine, there were reports that a twister killed six people in Kansas. Um, while that's never been substantiated, uh, what is true is that when her body was thrown back from London to the U.S., the makeup artist who prepared her body for funeral was Charles Schramm. The same man who'd done her makeup on yep. The Wizard of Oz, which kind of is a very sad story, I think, in a way. It's, and, it's and I think, sad. Yeah, and maybe somewhere over the rainbow, there's something to be said there as well, because it kind of became her signature song. She would sing it in other contexts, you know. Was it the it... Queen famously told her that she cried when she heard um, Somewhere Over the Rainbow? And, you know, her response, you know, she said pretty much that I hate it. I'm so sick of that song. And, you know, I've heard it so often. I've had to perform it so often that it's, you know, for me, it's just noise. Which is such a shame because yeah. of how beautiful a song it is. Yeah. Mm. It'll be interesting to see exactly, I mean, when this episode comes out, I think the film Judy will be on release, won't it? Or it will have yeah, been have released, been um, which I haven't Renee seen. Renee Zellweger um, playing Judy Garland. Yeah, but it'll be interesting to see exactly what the dramatic kind of emphasis is in that film. I'm not sure. Um, and, it, and it is, and it does lend the film a certain sort of retro, retroactive sort of sense of tragedy. And again, this is the thing where we talk about how difficult it is to talk about The Wizard of Oz as a narrative, as opposed to just a collection of things that we recognize as a film that exists outside the narrative itself. So things like Garland, for example, like is somewhere over the rainbow imbued with a greater sense of tragedy because we know how she was treated by the studio system, that we know that like, you know, maybe for her, there was no place like a home because she never really had a kind of that home, or at least as I understand it, she never really had mm. the ideal of that kind of, you know, the, the ideal of home that you imagine Dorothy wanting to go back to. She never had that kind of safe place where she was kind of like comfortable and able to be herself. 
but also like how do we reckon with and think about uh, these people who suffered ill treatment at the hand of the Hollywood machine yeah. you know because there's a great book about um, women in Hollywood by Molly Haskell the, uh, from reverence to rape is what it's called and her basic argument is that we remember these people for their triumphs and their successes you know and over, over time we forget about the the disappointments and so on but again I think the tension is how celebratory is that are we are we in danger of kind of downplaying um, the negative aspects of the Hollywood machine? I mean, I think that's a question about history in general. And I think it's interesting because next week we'll be discussing Gone with the Wind, which is oh, full yeah. of it, all sorts of similar issues, even like culturally as opposed to about film itself. But I mean, even things like the way in which we romanticize the way in which like auteur directors behave and the way we sort of glamorize Kubrick terrorizing actors on the set of The Shining, for example. And we treat these sort of like actors who behave like, you know, like assholes to other people as being something that they do for the art because We've it leads to a good film. Stop celebrating it. Right? Yeah. I, 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 I think Kubrick has been cancelled. Time up. Sorry. More seriously, though, I think it is something to kind of discuss and something to engage with. And I think that it's interesting that The Wizard of Oz kind of has this aspect to it. I think that even, and again, maybe one of the interesting things about The Wizard of Oz, and I think we're, we're kind of reaching a wrap up at this point as well, but one of the things that I find interesting about The Wizard of Oz is how a lot of the supplemental material, a lot of the material that kind of goes back to The Wizard of Oz and plays with it, tends to peer through a dark lens. I mean, Return to Oz is the most obvious example, Mm. where there were discussions about how much the film would terrify children. But like going back and watching The Wizard of Oz even this time, I was kind of surprised at how much darkness there is there in the film. Like the film gets away with it because it is so brightly lit and it's so kind of it's got a musical extravaganza and it's cartoonish and it's exaggerated Uh, but the film is full of all these kind of weird things that even as a child you know as a child would have scared me we pointed to the flying monkeys being terrifying and and the music and the sort of like the scene of them attacking and unstuffing and ripping apart the scarecrow by the way way, that's a fantastic scene the entire they're all landing i know we can see the wires and that but 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 it it it's it is just incredible yeah. The way that is staged and but uh, the number of actors involved in it, the, the kind of the, the the actual set design and production design, the choreography, the stunt work, the ripping of the scarecrow apart with kind of like you know, with the straw going everywhere. But like there is this kind of weird like I don't know if it's melancholy is the right word to describe it, but it gets back to what we we're saying about the wizard there, where the wizard, you know, at the end he's telling the characters that they always had what they needed all along, but he's also, you know, giving them Things that have no meaning, you know, things that, mm. you know, nominally superficially represent what they have already. So a doctorate, a ticking clock in the shape of a heart, you know, a medal for courage. But like, if the wizard is such a huckster and we know that he's such a huckster and we know that he's so unreliable, you know, is there a sense in which, you know, maybe we're being taken in by that? Maybe it's all just an elaborate deception. Maybe, you know, the wizard is that studio system that we discussed it looks beautiful you know sometimes it just happens to produce something that is absolutely magical and incomparable but underneath is just opportunism and and hucksterism and cynicism um and like self-preservation seems to be a large part of his motivation as well and kind of reconciling that so the question of like does the fact that and again this is that's reaching okay isn't it well i was gonna i was gonna build to something but (laughs) 
I was building. I wasn't necessarily reaching. But like, I think we talked about this in the podcast before. Where the continue question... to build. Continue to build. Uh, the... um, sorry, <laughs> what were you building about, towards? Like, things, things like, and I can't remember what context we discussed it in, uh, Andrew. Maybe you'll be able to remember this. But the question of if an epiphany um, has value of itself, even if the source of that epiphany isn't necessarily like real or valid. Uh, oh, it's 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 the kind of it's something that comes up repeatedly in in Nolan's films. Actually, it's the question of like if you have an epiphany or a realization. I think it's an inception. Is is one of those examples where like the entire thing is managed and fake and orchestrated. And again, an inception is another movie that is arguably works as a metaphor for kind of filmmaking, where it's all you know the cynically manipulated and carefully built structure that's designed to produce an epiphany or produce a sort of a realization in you. Does that make the realization that you have any less valuable because it's the result of like manipulation or hucksterism or kind of cross, you know, consumerism? But, like, like the he, like I think the, the wizard is quite is... transparently um, a, exposed yeah. as a yeah. fraud, and everything that he says after that point is with that caveat uh, after that realization. But so it's, it's not pretty... like he said things while he's the um, the great, great and, and powerful, powerful Oz yeah. that they've taken on board. It, it he he said to them, "Well, there are a lot of well, there are a lot of people with 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 much less brains than you, yeah. and uh, and the 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 way the way they mark that is it is with this uh, diploma. And since you since you." perhaps uh, deserve it more here you go here is your diploma yeah and but it but it and but it's what that represents i think it's difficult to be cynical about that after you've broken down the 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 artifice okay. of it because i think that like the reason why you know the scarecrow is is smart is not because the wizard says it, it's because you as you point out you've seen him planning he's the one who orchestrates the plan but it's in. it's it's what helps the he's the, the, the lion the to figure it out yeah, yeah. um so it, like like it it's it's not it's the 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 audience does realize it before the lion but the me, the me, the the, the, the characters that, only realize the characters it when only realize it when it's stated, stated by, by the, the wizard. wizard yeah and the fact that you know the wizard is a huckster doesn't you have that paradox where the wizard is a huckster but he's also speaking a fundamental truth which is something i associate with i don't know maybe it's because and, of, and he's also being quite straightforward at that point I suppose. Like and even describing kind of like his his rise to 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 becoming the wizard. He hasn't he is not the economy uh, as it was at the time I couldn't turn down a job. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just thinking about just to jump back oh, slightly. Oh, when... being what they were, I accepted the job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just thinking about what Darren was saying a few minutes ago there about the darkness of the film and a sequence of the film I'd forgotten was the the apple trees. You know, the um the sentient trees. The sort of um, Ed Asner voice. Not Ed Asner, yeah. but Ed Asner, yeah, yeah. kind of like the characterization I would associate with it. And it's interesting. You have these things that seem like they're from a more European fairy tale tradition, like the dark forests and things. But there is something quintessentially American about The Wizard of Oz, isn't there? And I think, I don't know, because it's a studio production released in 1939, as we said, that's the year many people regard as like the apex of classic Hollywood. Because this was a filmmaking regime that produced stories in forms that can be done in other cultures, but they often feel, I don't know, like truest when they are issued from Hollywood in a funny sort of way. So things like musicals or westerns or gangster movies. Because it's a story that has this kind of heartland American rural setting in a way that's very evocative. So, yeah, I guess to sum up, when people talk about quintessentially American stories and they reference things like, I don't know, Huckleberry Finn, I really don't think it's too much of a stretch to add 
MGM's The Wizard of Oz into that discussion. No, um, no. But specifically the MGM the version, age yeah. of America. Yeah. Um, it, it, it makes it easier to kind of add these things to the to, to the canon and I think because it's a it's worthy example yeah. yeah and I mean it, it's there's a great quote here again sorry uh, Carl how did um, I did I cut you off no no I was done sorry sorry. Um, sorry great quote from John Waters here where he when he was asked why it's a quintessentially American story and his reply was maybe it's because what I do believe in America anything can happen the great freedom of living in America compared to many other countries, maybe this could happen. You could be home one day and be really just transported to another world, learn everything and come back. To mm. me, it is American because of the values of friends and how people save each other and expose fraud. The person behind the curtain really is, uh, sorry, is really <laughs> that has no power. This is a very American idea to me. And there is something kind of romantic mm. in that, I think. Yeah, there is, and and it's interesting that somewhere over the rainbow, in its other kind of forms, it kind of becomes this American dream kind of piece, doesn't it? And what's interesting about the song actually is it ends on kind of an indefinite note. It ends with a question, doesn't it? Yeah. Why um, can't so, I? Yeah. Why can't I? Exactly. So yeah, interesting. All right, I think that about wraps it up then. Unless there's anything else you want to talk about, anything that we haven't discussed already. I'd like I'd like to celebrate celebrate I should say, uh, Bert Lahr. Um, as the cowardly lion, I just loved him in this. They, they, they his introduction with the put him up, put him up, <laughs> and um, uh, it's incredible. His, his and, and and I don't know how much it had to do with him, but the the um him smashing through the window, that whole char- uh, <laughs> character of I laughed for so long after that that very simple kind of when when they Physical leave comedy when they yeah. leave the wizard's chamber yeah <laughs> this, uh, runs out smashes through a window it was incredible i and he he like every every everything he did i i really really enjoyed um i thought he was tremendous in this um, yeah the last th- the last thing i wanted to say is just that because we've talked about people like jack dawn and adrian i think it's also fair to mention cedric gibbons who was the chief art director uh, responsible for the sets and someone who'd made a name for himself on historical epics had done more art deco stuff as well but the wizard of oz again a very different challenge because of these fantasy settings but just in brief again it underscores that importance of collaboration as we've said so many times in this discussion yeah, it is. And again, like the, it's just amazing to, to look at. I mean, I watched it in high definition, probably the first time I've watched it in high definition on a television set today, and it looks astounding. It's luscious. It's really amazing. Um, and again, like you talk about things like people being worried about watching older films in high definition, or even like TV shows upscaling to high definition, because they're worried about how makeup effects will hold up and that sort of stuff. Everything here works, I think. There's there's not one moment where you're kind of taken out of it. And I mean, it's even things like the little details of like the exotic birds in the background during the shots in Oz, which just add a sense of character where, you know, I don't remember if I noticed them when I was watching on television or when I would have seen it in, in the cinema when I was younger, but it adds a sense of like the world feeling kind of like every little detail has been paid attention to in mm. building this film. Um, and it reminds me a lot of, I think, is it Dark Tower Age of Resistance, which is on Netflix at the moment, the Jim Henson show. Um, it's not a good narrative. It's not particularly engaging or interesting. It's it's kind of like it's far too long for what it is like on Netflix shows. But watching it, it's it's just a stunning ode to kind of craft. It reminds me like a lot of sequences have things happening in the background out of focus. But because it's a show with puppets and because it's shot on sound stages, 
you know that everything happening in the background, somebody has been working on that for a week or two at a time. Somebody's built that puppet. Two people are operating that puppet, yep. even though it's not actually in focus for any of the shots. So here you have a lot of that as well, where it's like, you know, the Tin Man will be talking and in the corner there's a crane, a beautiful crane, just wandering around in the background, picking, you know, at the grass yeah. um, to get a sense of like, you know, scale and kind of majesty, a sense of vibrancy, which is just astounding. I, I, it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of work. Yeah, totally. Even down to thing like things like the cowardly lion's tail, which I think is oh wow, being off, <laughs> yeah, being wagged by somebody off off screen, and absolutely right, Darren. I agree with everything you just said. All right, then. So what we normally do when we finish up is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners. That could be something related to the film that we've discussed. It could be something that you were enjoying yourself at the moment recently that you like to draw attention to. But basically, if somebody's listening to this podcast and they want a recommendation, uh, is there anything that you would recommend for them, Carl? Well, just very briefly, I, I think Return to Oz is worth seeking out. I think a lot of people haven't seen it, and um, I'm, I'm only basing that off one solitary view in some time ago, but it it's an interesting film, uh, I think. It's dark. I think Feruza Bolt, who plays the lead, is really good. So yeah, I think people should follow up The Wizard of Oz with Return to Oz, I do. Yeah. I'd, I'd agree with that as well, um, actually. Um, and Andrew? Um, I, in terms of the Wizard of Oz, we spoke about kind of how this movie, um, how this film has become the, uh, the ultimate version of, um, the Wizard of Oz. And I, I, I believe it's, um, under a paywall, but episode 200 of Comedy Bang Bang features, um, the theatrical director Don DeMello describing his production of uh disney's the wizard of oz it has to be (laughs) it does it does (laughs) and it has to be pointed out to him that disney didn't create the wizard of oz they say i just like to stick disney on it (laughs) it makes it more appealing for the kids but um another thing that um i would like to um kind of maybe plug is a new podcast that i've just listened to one episode of which is um uh, heavyweight it's on gimlet um and we were talking a lot about kind of um um about dorothy as a child and kind of the 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 the, the, the idea of her her kind of exploring um like the possibilities um versus kind of um uh, the uh, parochial kind of message of the movie one um uh, podcast I really enjoyed lately was number twenty four of um the heavyweight podcast, which is called Jimmy and Mark. It's episode twenty four and it's about um I think a ten and uh, eleven or twelve year old um uh, boys who uh, went on a two hundred kind of uh, kilometer bike ride or wow. so uh, um in uh, in the seventies um. It was 240 miles um, in a bicycle trip in, in three days across two states with no adult supervision. And I love that stuff. It's the kind of thing that makes Darren um, <laughs> seriously uncomfortable. Deeply, deeply uncomfortable. Um, for my recommendations, two quick ones. I would recommend uh, for people who like Oz or want sort of more Oz content in their lives, Wicked, um, whether the book yeah. or the TV show. Uh, sorry, the book or the stage show. I saw the stage presentation a couple of years ago when it came to the board. Gosh, it's beautiful. It's staggering. And it's clever. And it picks, it does something interesting with its relationship with The Wizard of Oz that I really, really like. Um, I'd also recommend uh, giving Return 
Return Dolls ago as well. I probably need to rewatch that. It's been a while. I remember quite liking it, if thinking it was a very strange choice to take a, mm. you know, Wizard of Oz story. What's and the Wiz like? The Wiz I haven't watched in years, perhaps because of its involvement in Michael Jackson, but I remember quite liking it. But keep in mind that I was going through a phase of like really liking black exploitation cinema. I love Blackula as well. Um, so I kind of, you know, I liked it. I'm not in a rush to revisit it, though. Right. right. Uh, what I would recommend... So there's uh, a, curiosity me to, a curiosity to me when I was looking at kind of all of the adaptations. Wizard of Oz-related memorabilia. And then finally, actually, uh, David Lynch, um, who, whether or not he's banned from the podcast, um, I would recommend... <laughs> I was saying all John Waters's. <laughs> all the John Waters. It's There's no John Waters under the bridge here, unfortunately. David is, uh, David is welcome and has been welcomed. He has been welcomed. Um... But yeah, Dave, David Lynch, um, his uh, Wild at Heart, uh, which is his, yeah. his adaptation of The Wizard of Oz, starring Laura Dern, uh, National Treasure Laura Dern, and Nicolas Cage uh, as well on this sort of like violent road trip adventure. Um, lots and lots of stuff to recommend it. It's, as you might imagine from a David Lynch film, really, really weird. It's also... As you might imagine from a Nicolas Cage film. <laughs> it's also really, really weird. Um, it also stars... Um, it's... Yes, it stars uh, Willem Dafoe as Bobby Peru, the embodiment of corruption within American culture. Uh, it's amazing. I really, really recommend it. And if you are looking for something kind of Wizard of Oz like to seek out, watch Wild at Heart. Just not with the kids. That's that's yeah, just yeah. before we continue. Oh, with yes. That. Yeah, I should say. <laughs> Episode 200 of Comedy Bang Bang. Also not for children. Um, all right, then. So, Carl, tell us a bit about the movie palace. Uh, how's it going? Where can we find you online? And what have you got coming up? Okay, so we've just come out of um, a couple of episodes on film noir to mark noir vember. Uh, I think we'll be a bit more festive for the remainder of the year, so stay tuned for more details on that. Um, if you want to find it on uh, find the podcast on Twitter, it's at Movie Palace Pod. If you want to find me on Twitter, it's at CKJ Sweeney. Um, or you can also get to at Motion Picks Pod, which is a podcast uh, I'm doing with our mutual friend Tony Black. Um, which is just getting up and, uh, up and running as we record here, but it's kind of taking a new release and trying to find a kind of interesting angle to, um, like a retroactive angle or a broader angle to discuss about it. So we did Rambo Last Blood and we talked about the broader trend of, you know, old man action cinema, for example, that kind of thing. So yeah, you can check that out as well. Um, so were you quite you so taken with it? <laughs> I think of these... Uh, of this run of films, Rambo Last Blood is not the most distinguished, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. no, it's not. Um, cheers. Um, and Andrew, where can we find you? Or can we find you? You can't find me. <laughs> Take um, that as a they, challenge, listeners. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've He's said, floating I've, in a hot air balloon somewhere yeah, over yeah. the, the podcast. I've said that my, my, my Twitter account has been deactivated but maybe by his own choice but may maybe salvaged <laughs> if there's a, if there's enough people like a, a public demand a public if you demand, make your voice exactly. heard listen. if there's a petition a peti- so <laughs> you so, want like a game of thrones style petition no well. if you go to uh petitions uh dot gov dot i uh, uh, okay. or change.org <laughs> change.org yeah 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 um, um but yeah i i i i don't know why i'm even giving people the option of of saying why i should have a twitter i don't think i should have a twitter i don't think anyone is disagreeing with me so um anyway there's that you can't find me is um, the answer well 
Uh, the podcast itself you can find online at the 250 on SoundCloud and Stitcher and iTunes, wherever good podcasts are sold and not sold. Uh, we're coming into December, um, so we'll obviously be taking a bit of a festive stint ourselves. Next week, uh, we'll be continuing and concluding our winter of 1939 uh, with the wonderful uh, Grace Duffy and uh, Rena McGregor, uh, where we'll be discussing um, Gone with the Wind. But coming up, we have our whole slew of usual Christmas programming, including we'll be doing a Star Wars film, which is The Empire Strikes Back. We'll be doing The Apartment for Christmas, and maybe listeners if you're lucky, we'll find time to cover Aladdin as well around New Year's. Uh, but yeah, take it easy, guys. We've got and a lot if of you're crazy. if you're appropriately uh, grateful, <laughs> okay. Of <laughs> course, there's no way of me measuring that. Let's just let, let's let, just do it anyway. Let's just reveal that we've already recorded and it's coming to you. You <laughs> you get a podcast. You get, get a podcast. podcast. You get a podcast. Merry Christmas, guys. Happy December. Uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks, Carl. Thank you, Carl. Thank you. If happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow, why, oh, why can't I? Bobby De Niro. Am I am I saying that right? Yeah, you said it right. All right, now I'm I'm Darren Mooney. I'm a co-host of a podcast that looks at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time as voted for by users. Now, under the terms of the list, there are only a very select set of circumstances in which a Martin Scorsese movie and a Robert De Niro movie wouldn't make the list. So, uh, yeah, is it a documentary about a kind of a musician like I don't know Bob Dylan or the Rolling Stones? No. And uh, is it a spiritual psychological drama about Jesuits in 17th century Japan. No. All right, then. And uh, just one more question, Bobby, strictly pro forma. Have you made any remarks in the recent past that could be characterized as political in nature? You know, maybe something about President Donald Trump. On a job? Yeah. He is a, he's a fake president. It's no longer down with Trump. It's... <laughs> I don't think so. All right, then. I guess we'll be talking about The Irishman in a couple of weeks. Actually, you know, Bobby, we're, we're doing a season of, of Scorsese films next year. And I uh, I wanted to call it Score Scorsese for 2020. Right. But it, it seems like uh, some people have been complaining about it now. It doesn't, doesn't matter who they are. Not a big deal. We're, we're going to do it anyway. You know that, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah, so it, it really doesn't make a difference who it was who, who complained about that. What do you want to know? You want to know if I did it or not? No, I'm, I'm just saying it, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference to me who it was who, who said that. It's, it's grand. It's not a big deal. <laughs> all right, then. Yeah, all right, but...